Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Again, step, kick, kick, knee, kick, touch. Again, step, kick, kick, knee, kick, touch. Again, step, kick, kick, knee, kick, touch. Again, step, kick, kick, leap, kick, touch. Right. Let's do the whole combination facing away from the mirror. From the top. A five, six, seven, eight. Hello, all you theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had so much success off Broadway, they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is a fellow podcaster. He's on the network, the Broadway Podcast Network. Uh, he hosts Act of Kindness. Please welcome Robert Peter Paul. Hi, Robert. Hi. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Um, you for Rob, Robert, Robbie, Bobby, anything, Bobby, fine. Baby, Bobby, Bobby. Robbie, Robbie, but yeah, that's totally fine with me. Peter, Paul, uh, whatever you want to say, it works. <laughs> I mean, you might be the only person I know who has three names in their name. Well, Matt, I also have a middle name. I have a confirmation name. I have names sometimes I just throw in there for fun. It could it could get really long if you wanted to. That's what she said. Uh, but <laughs> can you give me like the full length, like what God sees when you when you walk out in the in the day? <laughs> okay, Robert Francis. Thomas Peter Paul is, I guess, the full thing if you want to include all the names. But uh-huh. I just, you know, I usually go by Rob Peter Paul. It's actually Italian, Pietro Paolo. So uh-huh. when we came over from Italy, it got Americanized like everything did. It got like the McDonald's filter mm-hmm. and it became Peter Paul, which is kind of odd when you it, when you find those Pietro Paolos out in the world. Like we have a weird story about my little brother falling in love with his ca- his camp counselor. And it turns out her last name was Pietro Paolo. And then my dad found out and he was like, yo, that's your cousin. You can't no! this girl. So yeah, so it can be a little tricky, but that's the that's the story of my name. That's a lot. I that. know that's why we're here today. So well, well, it is a joke in the show we're about to talk about, the changing of names. because uh, mm. Bobby Baby, what musical <laughs> are we covering today? We are covering a chorus line. 
ever heard of her. Ah! The, the the biggest off-Broadway to Broadway transfer until probably Rent and then Hamilton after that. Um, mm. Robert, what is your history with ACL? Uh, ACL means so much to me. I think over the years, I've seen it countless times. It's a little wild because I'm definitely a strong mover. I'm not a dancer. And yet this mm. is one of my favorite musicals of all time. Sure. And it was definitely championed by my grandma, my nanny, who took me to see a chorus line at the Paper Mill Playhouse in 2001. I think I was 10. So, you know, when you're a budding musical theater kid, you fall in love with the cast album and then you see the show. And most of the time, at least for me, when you're starting out, you're expecting to just be dazzled. And I think seeing a chorus line at such a young age was wild because it's so bare bones mm-hmm. until the the very end, you know, when they do like the big the big production number. Mm-hmm. And so it was it just stuck in my mind. It was so different. And then over the years when I saw it, I fell even more in love with it. And now I really get it and I can relate to it on so many levels. So it it has a special place in my heart just because of my grandma and then my now wife. What Matt? What? Oh, he's no, married. My wow. Brain. <laughs> sorry about it, everybody. Yeah, he's yeah, got the I'm hardware so- and everything. Sorry, guys, it's here. It's locked down. Uh, she, she's she been in a chorus line a bunch of times. And so I became a super fan. I saw it every time she was in it. Uh, I've had friends that have done it. And it means so much to us that actually at our wedding, we played what I did for love on the piano as we were coming out. Yeah, so it was... Uh, Oh, God, I don't think I'm going to like you. I don't think I'm going to like you by the end of this episode. Is it it too much? Is it too much? No, it's fine. It's great. First of all, it's your wedding. I wasn't there. Who cares? Uh, (laughs) I mean, I know when I get get married to myself, uh, (laughs) because Lord knows it's never going to be anybody at this point, I want, like, the stupidest Broadway song played. Like, my girlfriend who lives in Canada or something like that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just just to screw with people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Who is your wife played in, in Chorus Line? Okay, and then by the end of this, I would like an invitation to your wedding to yourself. And I think I'm going to earn it. And I think I'm going to win you over. But um, my wife, she played Val. So, mm-hmm. you know, super fun to see her do that. And what yeah. I think I love most about the show in general is just the songs are so, like, story-driven. Mm-hmm. And so seeing her do that every night was kind of wild, especially when I sat next to her dad. And she's singing about her tits and her ass, you know? But Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, she's an actress that her character singing about tits and ass. True, 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 true. It's so interesting you mentioned that about the score, because in my research, you know, I read through a bunch of um, On the Line and uh, the Michael Bennett books. And I, you know, did other research and stuff like that. When the show opens, like the show opened at the public and we'll talk a bit about the history in a bit. uh, You know, the reviews were ecstatic, but Mm. they all were kind of like basically saying that what made it so great was the feeling you got from it and you know michael bennett's work of the staging and the and the dancing and that the performances as a ensemble were so stellar but they're all like you know the score is fine it's not Mm -hmm. like a score you can necessarily hum but it's like it gets the job done (laughs) and then when it transferred to broadway and the critics had to see it again um and there they it opened in july in 1975 like it was a two three week uh break in between like I mentioned on a few uh, other episodes we had shows and, you know, transferred very quickly. Rent was like a month from New York Theater Workshop to the, to the Nederlander. Chorus Line was like two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, they couldn't print the reviews when it opened because there was a newspaper strike, I think. And I think even a musician strike. But uh, mm-hmm. the the critics finally were able to print the reviews in September. And they all, for the Broadway run, were like, you know, 
we I kind of slept on the score at the public, but like on a second listen and listening to the cast recording, I gotta say, like this score slaps and it's like really complex and story driven. I'm like, yeah, the score is incredible, but it's not a score that draws attention to itself. The whole show is just like one big I don't want to say machine because that sounds so clinical and cynical, but you know, it's like it it's so hard to pick things apart because it all just kind of comes together as a as a unit and that's partly yeah. because of how it was developed uh mm. which we'll also talk about i mean i'm assuming yeah. you know a bit about the developmental process of chorus line i was there uh no i took copious notes and i did i did a whole deep dive of research and i was surprised at how much i kind of knew already but mm-hmm. it is such an interesting story and i think you kind of hit the nail on the head with it is it's just like a, a musical ride and I mm-hmm. think, too, that's why it's hard to kind of pick out individual songs, even with the montages. And yeah. by the end of it, I was listening to the score again, uh, the soundtrack, like one of the newer ones had a karaoke bonus track. And I was listening to one and I was kind of surprised at how many songs from the whole show are actually like dabbled into one. So mm-hmm. the one is like the true culmination of, of having all the music all together. And it flows so well, I think, like you're saying, because it is that uh, that ride. But yeah, I've got a lot of fun facts about the the start of it. As do I. Was was brought together by Michael Bennett. We should compare notes. We should compare notes. Before we get to the notes, though, uh, Robert, for anyone yes. who's as who is as I like to call my listeners an uncultured fuck, what is a chorus line about? I was thinking about this, and I know you already hate me, so you're gonna hate me even more because I am just a cheese ball. But I think it. <laughs> I didn't say that down. I hate you. I said I'm probably just not going to like you by the end of this. Or did I say hate? Oh, I don't God. remember. That was ten minutes ago. I was a different person then, Bobby. <laughs> I know. I know it was a joke, and I and I know you're. I know you love. Me. How I dare you? I've never joked a day in my life. I am super serial. I am the <laughs> Al Gore of Broadway podcasts. He's holding up a sign that says "I love you, Robert," and I know it's the truth. I think this show just it boils down to being about love. I mean, it's a love story. I think to anybody with a dream, obviously to, to artists and dancers. Um, but you know, I guess for anybody who's uncultured out there and doesn't know, the log line would be, it's a group of dancers at an open call in New York city vying to book the gig. Mm -hmm. And as the story unfolds, you learn more and more about each person. It's not your typical audition scenario. Yeah. Well, it's more psychotic than that. It's not that they just like reveal themselves. They are told to reveal themselves. The final 17 that make it to the final callback cut, they're on the line, literally. And the director choreographer, Zach. says to them i want to hear more about your life tell me Mm. about you uh because he says i've got you know it's going to be a ensemble of four and four four boys four girls to which sheila bryant asks (laughs) you're such an iconic line no they need need any women need any women yeah yeah and he said you know they're gonna there's gonna be a lot of dancing in the show but i they're also gonna be uh there's gonna be some scene work and it's not about necessarily if you can act it's about who you are i want to see your personality i want to see what you bring to the table um which on paper i get because you want to know sort of who you're going to be spending the next year of your life with and also if it's a show that's sort of in development it's not about who can read the lines the best who can bring ideas and energy to the table uh who can (laughs) contribute not just take you know dictation uh which i appreciate what zach does is a little more psychotic because he really pushes these people to reveal some of their really harshest most vulnerable truths and Mm. dangles the opportunity of employment over their heads to get them to do it i i love it it's great uh and yeah it's a great story but i wonder if it was being developed today 
because obviously oh, actors equity would be is, all over it today yeah yeah i mean he would be dubbed a toxic director especially because michael is so parallel to zach and the things that he did when they were developing the show mm -hmm. i mean you you can't really put people through that emotionally but we do reap the benefits as an well, audience so michael bennett is interesting to me in the sense so he falls in line with bob fossey and jerome robbins of these director choreographers who were geniuses, like true geniuses in a way that I don't think we have many currently. The problem with genius is that it can also lead to a bit of madness because it's something yeah. it's people who are so incredible, who have this innate sense of what they do. And part of your brain kind of has to be broken for that other part to shine so brightly. Um, and I've also always said like to be in the arts, to tell stories of, mankind like you do have to be a tiny bit of a sociopath just because <laughs> you are bottling the human experience into a two and a half hour packaged product and yeah. and you know trying to find truth in it but in order to find truth you kind of have to steal from your life from other people's lives and you're kind of trying to make something packaged feel organic and if you're an actor you have to kind of channel those emotions eight times a week and in order to do that and protect yourself like a little part of you has to compartmentalize it's a whole process mm. now yeah. michael bennett a lot of puppet mastering being a oh, puppet yeah. master in a lot of ways and some of the best directors have been able to get their actors there in a very safe cathartic way um people like george c wolf nicholas heitner you know bart share we hear stories about how and joe mantello you know people who are actors directors who mm. create a safe environment for actors to fail to be vulnerable and figure out how to get the results that we need without you know causing more damage to them mm -hmm. michael bennett jerome robbins and bob fossey did not have higher education. They did not go to college. They did not go to acting school. They did not have the vocabulary to get the results they needed. They just knew what it was they wanted. And so they would do these really awful, harsh, and manipulative power plays to get out of their actors what they needed. Jerome Robbins was the ultimate cruelest because Jerome Robbins never said what it was he wanted. He would just make you do it over and over again many different ways until you did what he wanted. Fosse knew exactly what he wanted and basically would drive you crazy until you did it down to the minutia. Very David Fincher. Michael Bennett knew what he wanted. He didn't know how to get it. So he mm. would say what he would want and then he would do these psychological games of people to get them emotionally there because he none of them yeah. knew how to like do Stanislavski or Alexander technique. Like, they didn't know any of that shit to get the actors there in a healthy way. <laughs> yeah. So that's it's that's sort of the interesting thing with Bennett in addition to his connection to Zach. But yeah, yeah, there's so a... many stories about that too throughout the rehearsal process of these things. It was interesting to read that he did to get people's reaction from, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't want to jump ahead, but there's no, wait, well, there's, there's no structure here. Robert in Peter that Paul. case, here we go. Here we go. I was going to say, bitch. Ooh, I'm swimming in the pool. He's, he apparently at one rehearsal just like pretended to fall and break his knee and like cry and, mm -hmm. and that, and everyone's reaction he like mentally recorded. And that was how he got the moment with Paul that's in the show, mm -hmm. which I thought was wild and so manipulative, but then you're, I'm reading up on him and I don't know if it's just a public interview situation where he's saying what he thinks he should say, but he is quoted as saying the nicest thing any creative can do in an audition is be businesslike mm -hmm. and not raise any hopes and let the candidate walk away with their dignity. And I kind of laughed at that because maybe he was being snarky. I don't know. That's not the exact quote, but mm -hmm. maybe he just didn't have a firm grasp of 
what he his morals and what he thought was okay and he's just so technical about it that he thought manipulating people in this very specific manner was artistic and fine um yeah he's he's a difference what he says and what he does like yeah so like with Fosse, for example I mean, say what you will about the man. He was very self-aware and he mm. knew he was awful. And you could argue there's like an extra negative component to that. It's like, well, if you know, why don't you change it? And I think he tried. He was just so damaged. But he was yeah. he had no um, fantasies that he was actually misunderstood. He's like, no, I'm a dick. Uh, he's like, and I wish that I weren't. I try not to be, but I always end up being a dick. He's like, that's just who I am. Mm. Uh, if you want to know more, you can watch all that jazz. Michael Bennett always kind of thought that he was sort of this impish boy misunderstood like he in his biography in interviews about him people always say like you know michael always just kind of thought of himself still as a chorus kid even when he became michael bennett mm-hmm. and he always kind of grappled with that authority because he wanted to prove himself he wanted to do stuff he wanted to make something of himself and he had these visions but he also didn't want to be like the person in charge all the time he just wanted mm-hmm. everyone to kind of like be along for the ride with him which is not really how it goes once you get you know command of the ship it's up to you and you kind of yeah. have to step your booty up and he did but like in a really messy way that left a lot of carnage <laughs> Yo, he steered that into really choppy waters. And I want to point out, Matt, that I think you just created a great title. You might laugh at me. A great title for like a biopic about Michael Bennett, A Chorus Kid. A Chorus Kid. There you go. I mean, it's that. There we go. Ryan Murphy, you hearing me? You hearing me? Because you know I, he's doing that. I know. I have that in my notes. I'm like, what? Oh. do we want to dive into that? What's the update? What's well, going no on? Because no one knows what's going on with that shit. Um, <laughs> he like, I think it's supposed to be both the show, but also like the the creation of the show, which let's, we can mm. talk about the creation of the show. So like the basic yes. idea came from Michael Bennett. Uh, <laughs> and the truth is no one really knows when the idea came. Speaking, you were talking about like in an in- interview, Bennett said like, what it sounds like he should say. Mm-hmm. And that's true of Chorus Line as well. When the show opened, he would say in a lot of interviews that he came up with the idea while watching the Watergate hearings. Mm. And he was like, I was just so sick of all these lies. And I wanted a show about truth. And it, and it's like been documented that he was had an idea for this show even before then. So he's just totally full of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you've the parallel of the two... Um... Their names are escaping me, but there were also two dancers on Broadway simultaneously over the years who wanted to form their own troupe and start their so, own. So, we'll, yeah, so we, we will get to them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but so I don't know if you read the book Everything Was Possible by, um, God, what's his face? Ted Chapin? Susical and Musical? No, that's no not I wish. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's about Follies. It's about the creation of Follies. I did on not, Broadway. but I'm going to write it down and I'm going to oh. read it now. Absolutely read it. It's one of the best. I I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Follies, but it's just an incredible book. Uh, Definitely one of the best backstage musical books of all time. Anyway, um, because Michael Bennett choreographed Follies and co-directed it with Hal Prince. That was his first Broadway directing credit. Mm -hmm. And it was the show that sort of broke him up with Hal because they had done company together and it worked out so well. And then Follies really was a fight between them because and it's important to talk about Follies because it ties to Chorus Line. Bennett wanted Follies to be a big success because uh, mm. his only real big success pre Follies was Promises Promises, where he you know made a name for himself finally doing that show because he had sort of made a name for himself in the 60s, breaking out of the chorus and doing these 
dances for musicals that were the musicals were bad but his dances were good so he would mm-hmm. constantly get tony nominated for flops and everyone's <laughs> like it's just a matter of time it's a matter of time before <laughs> bennett like breaks into something great and he does promises promises with donna heading you know turkey lurkey time and bayork lees also in that and carol bishop aka kelly bishop mm. and that was you know he finally had a hit he had a name for himself he took over the reins of coco and uh all these other things but with Follies, he really wanted to do something groundbreaking, but also crowd-pleasing. And Hal Prince was like, I couldn't give two shits about the audience. I want to do what I want. <laughs> Michael Bennett's yeah. like, there are people paying money out there. We need to, like, think of them. And so he wanted Follies to be lighter and, and make more sense. And Hal Prince was like, never! It's a Broadway Fellini fever dream. And yeah, I love Follies. Think of them finally. Yeah, yeah I, I love I love Follies, but, like, it has its issues. Uh <laughs> but in in the book, Ted Chapin talks about how because that show huge like cast of 50 and like chorus kids who, you know, they would be, you know, work to death one day and then not do anything the next day because sometimes they'd be ghosts, sometimes they'd be dancing. And sometimes Hal Prince was like, I just want to work with the old people today. And so there was mm-hmm. like one day it's in the book. Uh, so this is like February or March of 1971. And uh, the chorus kids are just like sitting around doing absolutely nothing while Hal Prince is like working on waiting for the girls upstairs or something. And Michael Bennett sees them and just very nonchalantly says, don't worry, one day I'm going to create a musical about all of you. And Bob Avian, his uh, uh, associate, said the same thing that like, you know, even back from like Promises, Promises days, he like had this idea for a musical about the chorus. So the Watergate stuff is bullshit, but no one knows exactly when the idea came. Uh, you bring up the two dancers who wanted to do something. That was uh, Michonne Peacock and Tony Stevens. They had just, yes. yes. Tony Stevens was a dancer who wanted to become a choreographer. He had choreographed a Broadway flop that closed before opening night called Rachel Lily Rosenblum. And don't for, don't you forget it. I read it as Rachel Bloom when I first read it. And I was like, she was around back then? Rachel Bloom Crazy is eggs. evergreen. She sleeps <laughs> in the cocoon of Vaseline. That's how she looks so good. Um, yeah, Listen. It, yeah, it was one of those infamous shows that just, it never made its opening night at the Broadhurst Theater. Like everyone was high on poppers and it started Ellen Green. So that's fun. You can see mm. the poster at uh, Joe Allen's. But it was just Michonne Peacock was the ensemble. Tony Stevens choreographed it. And it was just like such a disaster for everybody that it was a relief when it closed. And the night it closed, Peacock and Stevens went to a bar, got very drunk. and Like we got to take control of our lives because like the people in charge don't know what they're doing anymore because mm-hmm. you can't just wait around for when Sondheim and Hal Prince are going to do the next musical. Like we can't just rely on them. Mm-hmm. Everyone else in this business doesn't know what they're doing. So they decided to come up with a dance troupe, a company that would create works like dance pieces, maybe like musicals too, but definitely dance focused. And they came up with a list of people in the business who they thought would be interested uh, interested, and they reached out to Michael Bennett to put him on like the board. And uh, the very first day they did the troupe just to sort of like try things out, it was just gonna be like a dance class and uh, everyone's there and all of a sudden in walks Michael Bennett and Donna McKechnie and everyone's like, oh. What, what's this Snap about exactly and then uh tony stevens and sean peacock are like we thought it was just gonna be a dance class but then like we do like an hour or so of that michael and donna show up and then michael whips out a tape recording he goes so let's sit in a circle drink some wine and talk about our lives yes so i read that this was actually on at midnight this started yeah at midnight at this exercise center in new york mm-hmm. i think it was like january 26th 1974 just to yep. set the scene not that Absolutely. i'm reading it specifically actually uh, january 1974 and could you imagine like okay there's wine mm-hmm. it's midnight you're with these prolific people and then you're just talking for hours i mean that's in itself 
quite a manipulation in my opinion, even if you don't know what you're doing, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, it's, it's, it was, it was the late at night. I think everyone had just finished their shows. I'm not sure like what time of day, uh, what day of the week it was. I want to say it was like a Saturday, which is crazy because then they all had to go do a matinee the next day. But like a lot of them were in Broadway shows, and like had to finish their two show days, then go to this dance studio, do a dance class and then sit around, you know, two in the morning, whatever. And uh, something they all talk so about weird. is like everyone in everyone in Broadway was uh, finally getting into therapy and everyone was also getting into Buddhism. So this mm-hmm. idea of being honest and truthful and like speaking about yourself and tapping into your emotions and your trauma so people were very interested in revealing parts of themselves and not sort of bottling things up, mm. uh, and, which is very important because if they weren't, we would not have the raw material that we have. Uh, oh, yes. And yeah, and like Michael Bennett always said, oh, I don't know what I want to do with this. I do think there's like a show in our lives, but basically I'm just recording all of us to see if there's anything there. Um, mm. And a lot of the material that's in a chorus line came from that recording session. They did one more like a couple of weeks later because that first session was so successful, but everyone says like most of the stuff in the show came from the first ones. Like Kelly Bishop talking about her life is basically Sheila in a chorus line, Maggie Winslow and at the ballet, that's Donna McKechnie's life. Uh, Mm. And just a lot of like overlap and people talking about their stuff. And one of my favorite ones is um, Candace Brown, who would eventually become the character of Richie because she had done the workshops, but then she went off to do Chicago. And so they brought Mm. in, um, a male actor and made the role Richie. But I think like Candy might have been the only um black woman at the taping, but everyone kind of like turned to her and was like, So Candy, like, what's your trauma? Be- like thinking it's 1970s, you grew up in like the late 40s in California as a black woman. Like, clearly you've got bad stories, right? And she was like, Um, my parents are happy that I'm happy and I went to school and it was all good and I had friends and I had a boyfriend and then I didn't have a boyfriend and I had a pretty relatively sane childhood. And then everybody just like went up and hugged her because they're like, oh, my God, someone had a normal childhood. Mm. Um, You know, I just worked on a workshop to show where a very similar situation happened. And it's interesting to contrast it against that time period. mm -hmm. because This director was singling out the people of color and trying to pull their their trauma. Mm -hmm. And it just was not okay on any level. And it, 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 it they put a stop to it it ended as well so interesting because that's because yeah. fe- it's fetishization you're fetishizing the your bipoc artists and and basically only using them for and defining them by the quote-unquote bad things that happened in their lives and then if something mm. didn't happen in their lives that was traumatic they have less value to the to the process no mm-hmm. that's that's no good um mm. But that's that's a story for another day. That's another story. Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> a different pod. I know, different but it pod. is interesting because it is this like white man who's even though it's everyone's stories, he is the one that is taking it and piecing it together along with the team, maybe. Yeah. It well, is so interesting. Just his perspective is. Yeah. The... Well, so the thing that kind of clinched the whole thing was Nicholas Dante at this taping. Um, mm. His story was the Paul monologue. And everyone says, like, because Nicholas was a dancer who was trying to become a writer, he had he had very well he had crafted very well his story in a way that it like just flowed very beautifully. And that basically the Paul monologue, as it is in the show, is nearly word for word what he said that day. Oh, wow. And it's pretty much the only reason why Dante is still credited as a book writer, because he he was the book writer when the show went into development. Because um, it was like mm. from those, those tapings in January and February, it wasn't until about September that they did the first workshop at the public. Mm. Uh, 
and there it was mostly just monologues and dance to like drum beats with like little pieces of music here and there. I don't think there were really any songs of that first workshop. Mm, sounds like a Saturday night. Absolutely. Uh, and it was like five <laughs> hours long. Uh, everyone said it was a big old mess, but like there was clearly something in there very deep down. And one of the major changes they made in between the first and second workshops was they brought on James Kirkwood Jr., who was a novelist and aspiring playwright and, you know, came in and really shaped the book. And Dante had to be kept on because without Dante, they couldn't have the Paul monologue. And Michael Mm -hmm. Bennett knew they needed the Paul monologue. That's interesting, too, because every actor that contributed all this other stuff basically signed away the rights to their stories and didn't get any credit until after the show uh, you know, was doing well and they re- renegotiated a deal. But I think it's it's wild that this one guy was able to kind of cling on to the the monologue. Maybe he yeah. was just smart enough to know. Well, I think because he wasn't in the show. He was yeah. part of writing the show. And uh, I think he, you could probably claim as a writer, you know, like that monologue that is in there is part of his intellectual property as a writer. Mm. Um, but yeah, because the, the, the signing of everyone's life away for like a dollar each that was sort of a technicality that Bennett had to do and no one knew it was going to be anything Mm. and again it depends on who you talk to like I was watching a theater talk interview with uh, John Breglio and Bob Avian when the Chorus Line revival was coming out and they talked about that and they were like listen Michael did not have to go back and like renegotiate a contract with the actors he did that out of the goodness of his heart no one thought this Mm. was going to be anything and then when it blew up he came back and negotiated the deal I'm like yeah for the lowest possible offer uh (laughs) where I think the entire cast shared like one point of one percent or something like Mm. that and so they all got like three tiers that funneled down yeah based off of like their contributions it was the original company it wasn't even everyone i think involved in the tapings but it was everyone in the original Mm. company and it would get it was based off of yeah like were you at the first reading or were you at the day we did the tapings and got everyone's life stories okay that's that's one tier next year is did you do one of the workshops that's the second tier are you in the original broadway company that's three tiers so like you got more money or more percentages based off of like each tier but still it wasn't a Mm. lot for anybody um yeah and Michael was like raking in the dough, you know, bought himself a Rolls Royce and like this giant uh, penthouse apartment and mm-hmm. just really kind of did all the wrong things mm. uh, that first year of Broadway success. I wonder if now with his estate, if they could almost renegotiate some kind of deal where the people that are still living can get <laughs> more money. I don't know how that all works, but yeah. it is, I think at it this point, yeah, I think at this point it's a lost cause and like you just kind of yeah. have to accept it and maybe take value take stock in the fact that like the thing you are a part of has continued living on so in a way you are still immortal um yeah which is a great thing uh in a weird i think that's even better than money in its own way because like eventually you will die and your bank account won't matter but the show that you're a part of will live on yeah and you were brought there by somebody else it wasn't like you started this idea on your own necessarily as a performer and it happens all the time even now as actors auditioning i mean how many times do i get self-tapes for things which i'm thankful to get but then it's like improv this scenario or you know here's the structure improv the lines they're not casting the thousands of people that are submitting but they're probably taking some of the lines and then using it in the commercial i mean you watch these things and you're like that sounds familiar i auditioned for that what's going on you know So it is nice to just get that exposure. You're right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird um, it's a weird situation. So like, the, I don't know if you've all read as well, like kind of how the choreography went for the show is uh, for the developmental process oh, yeah, like, like the workshops with, with a lot of the the improv and yeah, you know, 
So like in the, in those workshops, what would happen would be like while Bennett and the writers would kind of go off and shape the script, he would tell the dancers like, okay, like you're going to go into a groups of four and everyone come up with an eight count and he would watch and then like pick which ones he liked and move things around and then tie it together with his own stuff. And I know we're sort of in a time right now where it's all kind of got to come from one mind. And like, you know, if you're the choreographer, you're the one coming up with the steps. If you're the director, you come up with all the staging and like you have all the ideas. And Mm -hmm. it goes against the other argument that actors like to make of like, we're valuable to the process because it's a collaboration. And it goes Mm -hmm. into the argument of the workshops and honestly why, you know, labs then started happening and why actors trying to fight back and have workshops be a part of it again and get Mm -hmm. proper compensation. We talked about this with the Hamilton uh, episode as well mm-hmm. and it and it it's uh tied into a chorus line there's there's a lot of arguments on both sides yeah. the raw material for the script came from these dancers from their lives and some of the lines even came there and a lot of the dance steps you see in bennett's choreography came from the dancers where bennett comes in and shows his genius is being able to take the 24 hours worth of tapes with his writers, with his composer and his dance arranger and all that, looking through all the different eight counts and recognizing when there's something and then expanding upon that. That is, that is what makes him in charge. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, like Priscilla Lopez did not write nothing. She wrote, she lived the life that nothing is about. Edward Kleban and Marvin Hamlish wrote songs in the whole it's show. It's a great song. And that and they and when you read books uh because there are so many books about this show and like mm-hmm. the process of it and everyone likes to c- take credit for everything or or highlight the importance of what they did and the truth is you know Kleban would look through the the transcripts and just be like and like every 30 pages he would finally find something. Mm-hmm. So you know it's not, a lot I don't of work. I mean, it's a I, lot of work. I worked on the other side of the table on an ethnodrama and it was, you know, with a local arts program and we compiled all these hours of interviews from these young kids. And it it's just insane going through it and picking what to what to put out there. But it's usually the things I feel like, at least when you're interviewed, that you think are so boring and simple mm-hmm. that are the most telling and wind up in these shows. I'm sure like the people that are inspiring these characters maybe didn't originally think, you know, uh, their lines or, or the stories they were telling were that wild. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the craziest to me is is Judy Turner's. I'm pro- you probably know this story about how the sisters auditioned together. Yeah. And then ultimately the one that got it was not the sister who told the story about the little brat. It was the actual little brat. So the woman mm-hmm. that wound up in the show, I think Jackie Garland was the one that did the interview. And then her sister that wound up in the show was singing about herself, but she ended up getting cast. And it's yeah. just... It's like you you sit there and you think to yourself, oh, is it that interesting to say my sister's a little brat? Like half the people in America are saying that. Yeah. It it just works so well in the show and the way they were able to piece that together and have these moments. It's very balanced. Yeah. And that's and that's sort of what makes the whole show work so well. And again, the fact that it's a collaboration and and this workshop where it's like. The line little brat, that's what my sister was a little brat, and that's why I shaved her head. Like, that's funny. Mm -hmm. That's a funny moment. But it's funnier when it comes out of nowhere in the montage sequence with Hamlish's mm-hmm. music, which punctuates. That's why I shaved her head. I'm glad I shaved her head. Exactly. And then it just becomes extraordinarily funny. And it's, yeah, I mean, so like, I'll, I'm going to say this as vague as possible so no one can know what show I'm talking about. I have a friend who is in rehearsals for a show right now. Okay. And there is a sequence where the choreographer 
told all the actors to like it was a Michael Bennett situation. Everybody come up with like eight counts on your own. And they all did. And then the choreographer went, okay, we're going to do this person's first four and then this person's second four. Now let's put that together. Now let's see if we can, let, let's see how many times we want to repeat that. Okay. Now we'll have this group start and then this group start four counts later. Now let's do it at this angle. Now let's do it in a circle. Okay. Now we're going to start with blah, blah, blah. And a couple of the actors were a little PO'd because they were like, well, you're not choreographing. We're choreographing. You're mm-hmm. editing. And then I kind of sit there and I go, go, that's, but that's choreography. Like you're not, you are not the one who saw the movements that would work and figured out how to shape it into the story. You, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of came up with your own thing in the moment. And that's great. As an artist, you want to be free. You want to be open and and uninhibited. It took the choreographer's perspective to see what was there and build upon it. And mm-hmm. I, and again, we talk about like how everyone's saying, you know, you're not a good actor unless you're incredibly versatile. You got to play all the different things. You can't, you're not a good singer unless you go with the highest and the lowest. And it's like, well, no, you know, there, there's, there's more to it than that. It harks back to kind of what we were saying too, which is giving credit. I mean, people in this industry don't love to give people credit. They love to stand on the carpet and a lot of people will take the credit, Mm -hmm. but I'm all about like shout those people out. I mean, we do these award shows where people get like one minute to go up there and maybe rattle off like five names and it mostly is their mom and their wife and their husband, whatever. And their agent. Yeah. Yeah. And their agent. It's like, you know, give them a little scrolly where it says all the names, but the truth is it's all collaborative. I think yeah. I was listening to my, give my shout out, my friend, Alana Levine, her podcast and the award goes to, which is also on our network, by the way, she has this episode with Allison uh, Janney out. And she was saying when she won her Oscar, I think it was, she had this speech prepared that one of the writers on her show, mom wrote for her, which was um, just go up there and say, I did it all myself. And then mic <laughs> drop and walk away. And it was obviously so clearly supposed to be a joke because nobody yeah. does this stuff on their own. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting argument, but I think it's like if you're it's different if you're not even crediting people. I mean, that's where it's nuts to me. Yeah, it's it's there are so many people who are a part of a chorus line's DNA and, and should absolutely be shout, uh, you know, shouted out to. It's the it's a bit of the ego on both sides though it's it's the michael bennett ego of like the it all comes from my brain conceived it's the dancer's ego of like well if it weren't for us the show wouldn't exist and for both sides i kind of want to paraphrase um jesse eisenberg and social network which is <laughs> go for it there when he go. when he says to the um twinkle voss whatever their names are the twins in social network oh, goes oh, if yeah. you guys had invented facebook you would have invented facebook yeah. And it's true of everyone with the chorus line. It's like, if you had written a chorus line, you would have written a chorus line. And the truth is they all wrote a chorus line together. And it's when they all kind of acknowledge that and give everyone their due is when we all kind of can breathe and move on. Yeah. And that's why it's interesting. I mean, I I actually took this out just for this. I got it out of my little playbill bin. But when you're looking at like recent productions of a chorus line, like this was the 2018 City Center that I went to and had. Robin uh, Herter was casting that one, right? Yes. Did you see What I would have given to see her play Cassie. Uh, it was amazing. And I, I had a, a few friends in it. And my friend uh, Jay, it was Bobby. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was so beautiful. The production was amazing. And I think what hits me over the head like a nail, and it's not what I was going to say, but I'm going with it because I have ADD, is that it, it, there's so many things in the cor- in a chorus line that are just landmarks that you don't touch and you don't change. Even if you're tweaking little things here and there. Uh, there's so many things that have just stood the test of time yeah, and it's still relatable. I mean, this, this was a brand new production. I think the point of me bringing it out was that looking through it, I'm not seeing everyone that was in the original production getting credits. You know, I'm still seeing Michael Bennett's name is here, obviously Marvin yeah. Hamlish. I mean, there's certain people that are given the credit, 
Um, although uh, Bior did, I think, direct this one, which is cool. Yeah, she, she's so lovely. We, she actually came up to us after the show and was the kindest person because I went with a bunch of people that did a course line together and like gave out her email and is just so excited to keep the legacy going. Mm-hmm. So I think there are those different camps of people that have certain opinions about getting the credit and all this stuff after all these years, but she keeps that legacy alive in such a beautiful yeah. way. Well, I think also it matters with everyone in the original company where their lives went. So, and and there was yeah. a lot of glory at the time when the show came out. So, and the, and a lot of them did not necessarily go on to great things afterwards or as great things afterwards. And there can still be some, you know, bitter yeah. resentment about that. And so I feel like not to, you know, generalize but you got like people like donna mckechnie who still had a very strong theater career afterwards and kelly bishop who went on to you know become a tv star and biarkley who basically Mm -hmm. made it her life's uh journey to keep a chorus line going all over the world Mm -hmm. um they have no issues with their ties to the show and and you know are very open about it and candid and objective and recognize the good and the bad because they don't have as much to prove by saying otherwise and it's sort of like when that's the one thing you've done and you haven't been able to hold up since then it's like well i'm resentful now like that's the one thing i remembered for and so you know i you know i don't want to talk about it as much whereas i'm sort of like but you're remembered for something not everyone gets to be remembered for something most of us don't um i actually want to go back for a second to the development of this uh it's an interesting because the development of the workshops is just so fascinating i don't know how much you write about oh yeah i'm dancing back yeah um one of the first songs that made it in that like stayed in the show was at the ballet Mm. which is beautiful song it's a beautiful song and as a red shoes fan i love that it gets a major shout out because the truth is the red shoes was a major pivotal moment for dancers at that time Mm. when it came out in the late 40s which is so funny because that movie is sort of like a cautionary tale of being too devoted to your craft Mm. Well, Kelly Bishop says she is the red shoes. She's <laughs> yeah. She's, she, when in, yeah, when she talks about uh, when when they went in the Beyond the Golden Age clip, and they're all sort of talking about themselves. She everyone's like, yeah, she she was more in the red shoes. She had red yeah. hair, beautiful, best dancer on Broadway. Oh, yeah, um, and her but, confidence in that clip is so amazing. Oh, it's great. Well, because she she's has like, nothing to prove. She's like, I, I knew it's great. Was, I was great. <laughs> she's like, no one could outdance me. But um, yeah. have you seen the red shoes? I haven't. Are you aware I, of it? Do you like know what it is? I'm aware of it. Yeah, I'm aware okay. of the. It, it kept coming up too when I was looking into this. Yeah. Um, but I think it it can symbolize a lot of things when you're watching the show. I mean, I don't think I don't think you have to have seen it to realize it's like no, this no. I mean, I think it was it was them. a bit more of a punchline in the '70s because the movie was about 27 years old at that point. So, like in mm-hmm. to like you know give people. Uh, perspective that's like you know audiences today hearing a joke about jerry Maguire uh in a show it's like oh yeah we all saw that movie like great movie uh the red shoes is a ballet movie obviously and it's basically about a ballerina who all she wants to do is dance like that is her life's mission and she happens to fall in love with the composer of the ballet company who creates this ballet of the red shoes by Hans Christian Andersen, which she stars in. And it's like this big artistic triumph for both of them. And the uh, artistic director of the ballet company, it's like the greatest in the world. He's very, you know, he finds a kindred spirit in her because they're both like, it's about the art. It's about the art. It's about the art. And the composer is sort of like, yeah, art, the art's great. And I want to be an artist too. He's like, but also love. And she's like, yes, but also love. 
And then she gets sort of torn between the two. And everyone always sort of mistakes that it's about, you know, she she ends up killing herself. And everyone thinks it's because she's choosing between two men. That's not what it is. It's that she can't bring herself to give up either. And life without either is meaningless to her. Like, I want love, mm. but also I can't give up what I love to do, which is dance. And it's just so funny to me. Like, all these little girls go watch The Red Shoes. And they're like, I want to dance. And the mm. reason they, they see the movie and want to do that is because it's famous for having this 18-minute ballet in the middle of the film where we watch the ballet of The Red Shoes. And it's incredible. It's like amazing music, gorgeous color. It's all on YouTube. I highly recommend you watch it. Um, okay. And so I think so everyone- much content. I love it. You're welcome. Here's what I'm here for. I'm teaching the children and Robert. But uh, yes. we all we all watch that ballet and we're like, oh, my God, that's just so incredible. And I'm sure like in 1948, no one had ever seen something filmed that way before. It's just so mm. uh, inventive and innovative. <laughs> I feel like everyone just sort of all those girls then just like forget the last five minutes of the movie where she the kills herself. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's such an interesting theme that we keep exploring over and over again and it's certainly in a course line but it's still today in movies like la la land i mean tick tick boom the, mm-hmm. which just had the, its own film adaptation which is like that struggle between your passion but also your life you know yeah your, your home life your your love but then also following your dream and it's such a hard thing to balance and most of these movies don't don't show people how to balance it they usually end pretty badly <laughs> yeah um whiplash and black swan too it's very much about like Black Swan, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know, you can be great, but you have to give up some stuff. And mm. we're kind of in a place with the theater community, with a lot of artists, I would argue, where many people want to do great work, but they also want to have a life. And I think that's very understandable and commendable. Yeah. But you, we have to ask ourselves, like, how much of the work we're seeing is really great in the way that, like, People still talk about, you know, Patti Lapone in Avita. We have shows yeah. like A Chorus Line and Oklahoma and, you know, um, Ethel Merman and Gypsy and like things like that, that really kind of just have these marks that are always yeah. just going to like be a part of history. And we, I think we have a lot of um, excitement and love and support for the things that we all do. But, you know, I think about shows from four years ago that had these very passionate fan bases for a brief period of time and aren't talked about anymore this isn't Mm. me throwing it under the bus this is just a very prime example that i can think of i remember when bandstand came out i did not care for bandstand in any way but i remember the fan base for it was so intense yeah it was that like it basically that's part of the reason why it got filmed was because they were like well we've had this passionate fan base yeah that was six years ago seven five years ago six years ago no one talks about Bandstand now. And everyone, yeah. I remember, thought like Laura Austin's RIP was going to have a Tony <laughs> nomination because of how she's saying Welcome Home. Or an, mm-hmm. And that's not a moment that anyone talks about anymore. Not in the way that we talk about like Patty doing Everything's Coming Up Roses or uh, like Victoria Clark in Piazza, like these performances that yeah. really like just keep on holding on. Um, mm. I wonder and, if there's, a, do you, and I would love your thoughts too, like, uh, based off of tracking what you're saying is if there's a correlation between the fact now that we expect stars to always be stars across the board. So what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is on social media, we want to follow them and we want to see their life. And that's almost as important as seeing them on the stage. And so we have that, which is so different now from when these classic shows and iconic things came out. I mean, the stars of a chorus line weren't on Instagram, Patti Lapone. I don't even know. She's probably still not on Instagram, but it's like, probably not. Yeah. Uh, 
Also fun fact, random. I just wanted to throw this in here. I did not know her brother was in a chorus line, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, until researching it. But they were yeah, both nominated that year at the Tony Awards. That's wild. Isn't See, that crazy? It's so incestual, this, this business. Well, because you know that. So it, it's so funny if you actually watch the Tony ceremony. So Patty wasn't there because she was on the road with the acting company, but she was nominated mm. for the Robert Bridegroom. Mm. And when they announce her name as a nominee, they show Anne Reinking. And you can look see Anne Reinking look at the the TV and, and like basically look at to, like look to Bob Fosse and be like, the fuck? Like, I'm not Patty LaPone. <laughs> um award shows do crazy things. I just watched the speech where Joe Pesci won, um, was nominated for an Oscar because I keep going in for Jersey Boys. And I was like, I should hear what his voice sounds like if I'm going to audition for him. And so I was watching this clip. And for his Oscar for, I forget what he was nominated for. He won for Goodfellas. It was Goodfellas. That's what it was. They didn't show a clip. They showed a clip from Home Alone. Seriously? Which, and I think it was maybe because his Goodfellas lines were like too controversial for television. Probably. But anyway, these award shows do wild things. So I'm not surprised they did that. That's a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> I mean, and like it was still relatively early in the years of them airing the Tony Awards. I think they were like 10 years in at that point. So mm-hmm. they didn't really... I guess I didn't really know what to do when a nominee wasn't there. So they're like, I don't know. And like, there are also other years where the nominees are there and they show someone else. Like it's yeah. messy, 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 messy. Yeah. I mean, it's um, hard. Shout out to all the directors out there calling live shows. I've worked on them. I know well, it's, it's gone really a lot. Hard. It's gone a lot better now. It's a lot better <laughs> yeah. now. I think I, I still don't think they've necessarily filmed the performances that well these days, but they're, they've got a lot better about at least having the camera on the right nominee when their names are announced. Well, the fact that these shows have to pay for this too, I think is wild. Yeah. That always yeah. blows my mind. You have to pay to perform. And and it's also why the performances sometimes are so short. Like Chorus Line mm-hmm. had a nine minute, eight minute performance and it opened the ceremony it's 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 so crazy because it's so clear that chorus line was going to dominate and was you know the big favorite that year it was at the schubert theater where chorus line was performing mm-hmm. they opened the show with god i hope i get it a shortened version but still like a, so- a solid seven to eight minutes and then they closed the ceremony with one and it's very mm-hmm. hamilton in that way we're like where Ham- hamilton started off the telecast they did their performance then they closed the telecast yeah. Um, You're so right. They should have changed one to to WON. Sorry, I just said because they won. They won so yeah, they, many. They won. They won. God, they won so many. They won nine, right? Was it nine? I think so. They won musical score, book, director, choreographer, lighting, uh, actress, supporting actress, support. Yeah, they won nine. Ooh, yeah. And you know what? Speaking of numbers, I know I'm, I'm bobbling all over the place, but I I did when we were welcome to, welcome to my theater, Robert. This is how, this time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I think it's so crazy as we were talking about the development process that the fact that they balance, I think there's like 19 actual characters, but there's only what 17 on the line. Mm-hmm. I, I name another, I mean, you probably can, but I don't know if most people can name another show or even movie or, or film, TV show, whatever, where they balance that many characters. And by the end, you feel like you kind of really know each one and know who they are. I mean, yeah, that's quite a feat to me, I, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think there are some characters that maybe fall a little more by the wayside than others. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Like Alan, Christine. Like Chris, they get they get the sing number, but I think Christine makes more of an impression than that than Al does. And then I'm already forgetting his name. There's the guy who sings about, uh, you know, having worked in strip clubs. Uh, I forget. Oh, his name. um, uh, not Bobby, not Gregory. No, those like, are no one. I can actually days. look it up right here in my plan. Look, look it up right now. Um, yeah. um, Don. Don, yeah. Don is, yeah. I think, one of the characters that sort of falls by the wayside. He's not unmemorable. Uh, and also part of the reason I forgot his name is because Don is just such like, like yeah, I know, yeah. Don. 
he get he get he gets some stuff, but he like there are some characters that get like a song, right? Like you know, um, oh yeah, uh, Val gets a song. You know, Cassie obviously gets a song. Sheila is like the core of at the ballet. Maggie gets to be the high note of at the ballet. Um, Diana gets a song. Uh, Paul gets the monologue. Diana and Cassie, I think, are arguably the leads. I mean, if you're gonna, I don't think there are leads, but yeah well there was controversy at the time when the tonys happened when donna was put in lead because everyone Mm. thought it was an ensemble show and there was also a lot of tension backstage because donna was you know michael's muse and collaborated him so much and you know she was never really a chorus person she was in the ensemble for one broadway musical and then pretty much was playing parts after that and Mm. all the i know like kelly bishop talked about that in beyond the golden age when donna sort of showed up to that class that day for the taping she was like why is donna here this is supposed Mm -hmm. to be for chorus people donna hasn't been in the chorus in 12 years um and donna had just like come back from la where she had made a movie and all this stuff but um i mean i think depending Mm -hmm. on how the show works and i think with donna mckechnie cassie absolutely was the lead for that year because the way that donna does that role just leaves such an impression but I mean, I think there are not so much who's the lead, but like I think there are certain roles that are just like so meaty that even though I would have no problem being in any of those roles, like if if you were to be like Matt, the five roles you would want over anything else, like I'd be like, yes, Cassie, Sheila, Val, um, yeah. Paul, and then probably Bobby, because I think Bobby's stuff in the and number is just so good. But everyone He's gets so a good. moment. Everyone gets an absolute they, moment. They certainly do. I mean, I know they they had to obviously balance it, but even reading about how Richie and Connie had their own song, I think called Confident or Confidence. Yeah. Uh, that was ultimately cut because it was too comical, they said, but it kind of dealt with their specific journeys. Yeah. Um, there are definitely people that aren't as spotlit, but I think just the fact that you feel like you kind of know each one a little bit by the end, except yeah. for maybe Don by Don. Um, yeah. is, is kinda, sorry, Don. No, it, it's wild. Well, I and, think and, because, yeah. sorry, you're excited. No, you're going to say. No, no, you go. No, you go. You go. Oh, okay. Thank you. We're excited. Well, I mean, this is so random again, but Cassie, you know, bringing her up, I think she also pops because she's in red, like the red shoes. And I did, I don't know if now is the right time to do it, but I did want to make sure we gave that lovely costume designer a shout out because- Miss Theoni V. Aldridge, yeah. Yeah, she, her costumes, again, have stood the test of time. How many times do you see a chorus line where it strays? I mean, it might stray a little bit, but everybody's using those same costumes. She also, I read, is the one who- pretty much made up not all the blocking but she decided that there was going to be a line on the stage they actually stood on i read again it's everyone has a different concept different things yeah bennett so like bennett was very obsessed as a director to start making musicals move like movies which is something he's that's not original with him that's that was going on since like the 40s if you watch there are certain shows each decade that push along the fluidity of broadway staging so like south pacific mm. was the first broadway musical to not have any blackouts but they did that by basically just having like three separate scrim curtains that were like would go back and forth so they could just go from one scene to the other it wasn't like highly movable scenery um, promises promises was just was described as another show that moved things forward because michael bennett would stage uh people around the scenery as scenes would change so, like no curtain would come down between scene changes but everything was sort of choreographed together so there were there were transitions mm. and then a chorus line there being no scenery it was all just a bare stage with lighting it was realistic with the mirrors and with the line itself but once we got into the black box situation in the uh uh black not mylar but um 
uh whatever the black like the black uh backdrop mm-hmm. it allowed fluidity for everything because it just was this sort of um malleable mm-hmm. piece i know aldridge uh had a lot of issues with the costuming because she was like how do you make statements with dance attire and mm. the two things that we that i know i know you know like cassie all in red like cassie's i think one of the only characters to wear a solid color that's that bold because characters mm. like sheila or um not maggie but oh i think like maybe away. yeah i think like bb maybe they have yeah more like solid colors but they're kind of basic like sheila's is skin colored also mm. sheila's leotard is always meant to be like a little bit too small to show mm. that sheila is more vulnerable than she lets on and also is like pushing the phrase of her youth she's not yes. she's like she's on the edge of being to it exactly so it's always meant to be just like slightly ill-fitting um mm. cassie also is like while she's all in red she also has like that little skirt none of the women are wearing skirts they're wearing sneakers and and leotards mm. with tights and like a crop top like cassie looks elegant yes she's got that little bathing suit cover up and yep. it's funny too because <laughs> she also designed annie and mm-hmm. annie is in that big bright red so it, maybe it's something with her i don't know but it could also just be the red shoes thing yeah. she loves red also because she's well, yeah, and we're in his his uh, you know, we're in kind of Zach's like mindset. So she she's the one that's always popping for him in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I I think that in the set, I mean, have you read anything about the set design and if it was because they didn't have an, enough money or whatever it was? Like, I think that has just again stood the test of time and makes it really easy for these other theaters to put it yeah. on. It wasn't due to lack of money, although most of the money spent on the chorus line was on the workshops. Uh, certain things were done because of budgetary constraints. For example, it has three orchestrators, which was very rare at the mm. time. Um, and it was because they could not afford to pay one orchestrator for the entire time. So they would pay each one oh. differently for blocks of time. So each orchestrator did different numbers, which is insane to think about because the whole orchestration sounds unified. But yeah. it's I know it's, it's Bill Byers, Jonathan Tunick, and I think Harold Wheeler, maybe. Hershey K maybe too. I don't know. Um, but because Harold Wheeler did the orchestrations for music in the mirror and he did that mm. during previews at the public, which originally Cassie had like boys as backup dancers and it was this whole other thing. And they were like, let's oh, wow. Yeah. Basically what brought it down, you asked because of the set design, it all just came back down to simplicity. Like the simpler, the better, the simpler, the better. Yeah. So originally they were putting into the budget, like things to pop out of the stage and from the wings, like there was going to be a, bobsled for diana for nothing and all this stuff oh wow and they just kept saying like no like simpler the better and michael wanted michael bennett wanted mirrors and he wanted black and then he's like well then we have the finale and so it's got to make an impression and originally it was going to be this grand staircase and these curtains and uh robin robin wagner the designer was like well what if we just did a big sunburst at the end he goes because we can do um and it was called the periactoid, which is a mm-hmm. scenic concept from Greek theater, which is basically a pillar with three sides, mm-hmm. and it allow with a simple shift you have a new back backdrop. And mm-hmm. so one was black, one was mirror, one was the sunburst. And he's like, let's just do the sunburst and makes it easy, and we can and you can get your black and get your mirrors anytime you want, Michael. And Michael Ben is like, great, there we go. Um, I've turned those many times in non-union theater over mm-hmm. the years. <laughs> yeah, well, and and oh boy, do they turn. But we talk about these contributions. I mean, so many things in this show happen really by committee. For example, do mm. you know that when the show was in previews at the public theater at the Newman, first yeah. of all, for like the first 
two weeks, there was uh, there nothing was said about who got the job. Bennett would pick at the end of the night who had done the best job on stage, and yes. that was who got the job in the end. The anxiety that that produces, which is palpable in the show and so relatable. Yeah, I, I think that is so wild, and that had quite an evolution, which I'm sure you're getting to. Yes, well, yeah, the the war it, it it came down to the wardrobe department basically confronted him. They're like, so that's a yes. nightmare backstage now because you have it set who comes on for the finale. He goes, and we don't know who gets the job until you announce it. He's like, so mm-hmm. we're scrambling backstage. Like you got to set it. So he said it, but originally Cassie didn't get the job because mm-hmm. uh, something that Bennett always really wanted for the show was like the truth. What's the truth? It's going to get the truth. Yes. And he's like, truthfully, Cassie would not get the job. She's too overqualified. Hmm. And, you know, they kept on toying with the role of Cassie. Originally, she had a star entrance because they wanted to give Donna a star entrance. So she showed hmm. up late in a fur, needing money for the taxi and like had a and talks about like having a mental breakdown. And they cut it because they're like, if Cassie was truly desperate to get this job, she would have been there on time. She would have been there early and she would have not drawn attention to herself. In fact, you mm. talk about her costume popping. It gave me the yeah. line, don't pop the head, Cassie, um, mm. which is You're we'll right. absolutely get to that. But um, which I'm, have you seen the movie, A Chorus Line? Unfortunately, no. Yes, I, I yeah. have seen it. I awful, actually don't awful. hate it. No, but I I, 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 I get compared to the show. It, it is not good. It's awful. And one of the biggest things they do wrong is they revert back to having Cassie be late for the auditions. And, yes. uh, and I'm like, that's it, no, she's so desperate to get this job. She would have gotten there so early to make it like, oh, she was stuck in traffic. I'm like, no, she would have gone on the mm. flight the day before. Yeah. yeah. And it is because they're like, I think um, Byrick Lee said that she was like, it was the first piece of theater to be a reality show it was like yeah. a reality show on stage because they right. were always like harking back to that truth very much so yeah. what ended up ma- what ended up making michael bennett change it so that cassie got the job was um neil simon was brought in to watch the show a couple of times and contributed some dialogue he has a couple of sprinklings here and there in like the bobby monologue uh supposedly he wrote val's monologue before tits and ass and He's the one who came out for Sheila. Uh, I'm a Leo. It means the other months of the year have to watch out. Uh, <laughs> that, that's such a good line. It's a great line. There, I mean, it didn't like rewrite the book, but like a couple of Neil Simon isms are in there. But while he was there, his wife at the time, Marsha Mason, who he you know wrote Goodbye Girl for, she had seen the show a bunch with him and was a huge champion of it. And she would offer feedback sometimes. And uh, Michael Bennett kept on being so perplexed because he was like that first night. The invited dress we had with all the chorus kids, like it was explosive and now we're sold out. And like the audiences are going really crazy for it, but not as crazy as I want. He goes, and I don't know what's wrong. Marsha Mason said, it's because you're not giving Cassie the job. She has Mm -hmm. to get the job. And he said, no, I can't. It's so unrealistic. And she looked him in the face and she goes, she's done everything right. She has done everything that's asked of her. She hasn't made a scene. She's And she's like, and everyone wants to know that there can be a second chance. We relate Mm -hmm. to her the hardest. We want it to be her. She's done everything right. You have to give her the job. And so he gave her the job. And there's a moment in the show when Zach makes his final decisions and he calls names and they all come forward and it's revealed the people at the front have actually now been cut. And Sheila has this very in long... real life still sometimes by the way oh absolutely Sheila, because in because at the beginning of the show and god i hope i get it the people he calls are the people who've made it so he does the reverse this time which is mm. just cruel but <laughs> sheila gets cut and she walks off to get her dance back and walks off stage and as she does she's watching zach 
it's that clear moment. that you know they have a they've worked before in the past and they know each other and mm. you know she's everyone needs the job everyone wants the job and he made her vulnerable that day and for what for nothing mm. but that walk off she does that was originally Cassie and I can imagine that stung a lot harder for audiences as a where like Cassie wasn't vindictive Cassie was vulnerable from the word go and really needed this second chance and did everything that was asked of her and Zach still pissed on her face and called it rain mm. as opposed to Sheila where like yes she needs it but she's not quite as open-hearted we like we relate to Sheila but we don't necessarily connect with her yeah. um and it sucks that she was vulnerable for quote-unquote nothing but it's it hurts a little less when it's Sheila as opposed to Cassie yeah and it works so well too I mean oh, yeah. the whole show is is screaming rejection so you kind of need that redemption story especially because the show if we're talking about truth is literally giving all these dancers a redemption story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it was at a time where like dancers weren't as respected and it was even credited with saving Broadway, like with all these dancers in this hit show. Mm-hmm. So to have that actually in the show is truthful. You know, it's not. Absolutely. And to, I mean, it ends on that wonderful note of them getting the job and they're all excited, but it's, it, it's so crazy how your, how your mood switches so quickly because we've, we're tense knowing that it's gotta be, only eight of these 17 and we've related to so many of them and we want no we want certain ones to get it more because we relate to them and we feel the pain when those dancers get cut Mm. but then we feel elated and we watch you know mark finally get his first broadway show and he gets to hug val who's the only one who's nice to him on the line Mm. uh or you know and we see cassie get her second chance and all this stuff and it's so lovely and then we get the finale finale which is an interesting combination one Mm -hmm. have you read a bit about what michael bennett was trying to convey with this finale a a little bit tell us tell a bit what 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 you well i don't know if it's there's so much out there which i think is wonderful about this stuff but uh the finale for me for me what i was getting from a lot of the stuff i don't know if i read directly about michael bennett but it was just the fact that they're trying to show obviously like the broadway show in its entirety Mm -hmm. uh and like the the big spectacle at the end and they're kind of giving audiences what they want but i think what comes through is like the i don't know if manic is the right word but just the the addiction and the high of like booking the part and being a part of that show for me i think it goes back to that eerie moment of one where they're rehearsing it it's Mm -hmm. like you see them at the end and there's something eerie about it yeah yeah we watch them rehearse the number uh for the for the audition and then we see the number in its entirety yeah what bennett wanted to do he wanted to make it kind of a depressing finale by saying we've just gotten to know these 17 dancers and by the end they're all just part of a line and they're all indistinguishable they're in the same costumes they're in a line kicking Mm -hmm. you can't tell one from the other i think that's partly true but i think there's a subconscious reason why audiences always would go crazy for it in addition to the fact that just musical theater chemistry Makes you go crazy for it. Yeah. Uh, in a we- in like my own, at least in my way, what, what always makes me feel so happy watching that number is like, it kind of feels a bit like a fantasy where they all got the job and they all got to do the number together and they all got to be in the Broadway show together. Yeah. Um, Cause we're watching the number as it's supposed to be on stage, but obviously it's only supposed to be eight of them and they're supposed yeah. to be a star in the front. But I just view it as like, they all got the job and it's a celebration of their own talents and they get to do the thing they love, which is dance and perform with no threat of unemployment with Mm. no need to be vulnerable, just pure joy. It's a celebration of their artistry. Mm. And 
yes, they are a little indistinguishable, indistinguishable from each other, but that's sort of just the double-edged sword of it. I don't look yeah. at it as like, oh, and now they're just part of being a chorus. I'm like, and now they get to be a chorus together. Like, Yeah, exactly. I don't read it that way either because I, I do remember people talking about how you want to just be blending and some people are saying they fade away at the end and it literally does fade, which is interesting. There's not a button, yeah. but I, I don't. I don't see it that way. I see it how you see it, which is that they're getting to do what they love. And we spent this whole show hearing them talk about what they want to do and what they love and how they want it so desperately. And then they're doing it at the end. So it is like a very exciting moment. Yeah, I think it's I mean, it's a little bit of both. And yeah, you're right. It does fade out because the the finale is the bows. They each come out and get their one individual bow. And yeah. then they're just a part of the of the chorus line. And yeah. then it fades out as they kick. But yeah, I've always I always found it more of a celebration of artistry and a paradise where they all got the job that is how yeah. I always view it. there is a little bit of that eerie thing like i was talking about before too when it's just fading out and they're kicking and they're all together and it's like oh this is like this is an addiction there's something yep. there for me when yep. i watch it but it's it's also overall inspiring so i'm not like walking away feeling like it was the end of watching the end of cabaret or something like that where it's a total switch you yeah. know what i mean yeah especially because they have that dark stage the whole time that's so uh for lack of a better word you know sparse and then by the end you're treated to this beautiful rich finale and it, mm-hmm. it's what you want so if he wanted it to be the other way he should have you know made yeah. sure maybe the dancers that didn't book it weren't in it which brings me to this <laughs> cut these cut dancers what's your yeah. feeling on on the cut dancers who are just kind of waiting around i get some of them are probably the dance captain the swings it's employing people um i don't know um, i think it's, it's so you need to have a couple of people at the start not not make it to the second cut just to sort of show you do know it you do you need it it's it seems superfluous until you don't have those dancers and you just have the 17 that make the cut yeah and you don't see the rejection at the start that's going to come again at the end there's a if you watch the tony performance from 1976 michael bennett directed that performance uh with the cameras himself and insisted on a close-up when uh zach robert lapone makes the cuts and he says Mm. uh other male dancers thank you so much i'm sorry and there's a little close-up uh that's very short of one of the dancers that didn't make it and you just see how Mm. distraught he is but he has to it's very quick because he's got to get his back and he's got to get out of there Mm. um and it's just like it's heartbreaking and you need that at the start and i know that those dancers were the understudies as well in the swings uh, yeah. I don't know how we would do that now. I'm sure we'd have those dancers as w- in addition to like three other swings and should like yeah. five people in the 17 principles be out and all those extra dancers have to go on. Then we'd only have three swings that get cut you know, mm-hmm. that day, but st- you still need at least somebody. Cut. Yeah, no, you're right. And and it's brilliant too. in the fact that they each kind of get their own moment. I mean, there's like the headband dude. They all yeah. have names actually, which I didn't realize it, mm. it's kind of, I think his, the name is Butch or depending on who's playing it. Um, but it they all kind of do get their own moment in that little short amount of time. And it's fun as the audience because you don't know who's actually going to make it unless you've seen the show a million times like us. But absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah, we I have to feel bad. Yeah, like, there's head hand band, uh, headband boy. There's um girl who has no ballet training. And Zach tells her to stop dancing. Yeah. Uh, don't dance. Don't dance. <laughs> and uh, when he's when he's making his final decisions and he points to two different women and he says any Broadway shows, one says no, and the other one says touring companies. And I don't mm. think either of them make the final cut. Uh, and I love, which I love the fact that they make it that, you know, he asks someone if she's had any Broadway shows and she says no, which is probably a clinching decision for Zach of like, well, you know, 
I, I see potential, but you know, let me see if she's had any Broadway shows. Cause if she's done Broadway shows, that means she can take the pressure in rehearsals. Cause mm. I'm not seeing it here, but she doesn't get called back. Cause she doesn't have any Broadway shows, but how do you get called back for a Broadway show? If you need to have a Broadway show and you've never done a Broadway show, mm. you know, um, like I think Nicole Byer kind of talked about this of like, you can only like book a, a, a gig on a talk show as a comic. If you've, been on a talk show as a comic like they like, will oh, show yeah. us your work on other talk shows she's like yeah. how do i do that if i can't if i haven't been booked yet yeah yeah it's so hard it's just like a, a circle of hell sometimes and it's the same with every with an actor it's like you can only book a gig if you have a reel you can show me from your other projects it's like well i need my first project yeah yeah oh before i forget we have to take a break oh really i beg to differ with you how do you mean you're the top yeah you're an arrow collar you're the top Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No and we're back. Um, so I keep forgetting, Robert, that I am on the Broadway Podcast Network and we have to do breaks sometimes, especially because I do a long form interview. Yeah. So I have to do I have to do a second break. Pretty soon after this one, because I waited about an hour and ten. Oh, that's to do my fun. First See, break. I don't even tell people. I just like wait for a pause and I slot my little ads in. So I like that you give people a warning. Maybe I'll yeah, well, I have a couple of episodes where I just totally forgot to do it, and so it is. <laughs> it just comes right in there. Um, but I tried. I tried to. Do, I try to do the warnings. I'm professional that way. I'm considerate. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, what is a favorite moment of yours in course? And what are a couple of favorite moments? What was that come to mind? Reading my mind. Yes, well, I am. I was thinking of. This isn't necessarily my favorite moment. I'll tell you my favorite moment after this because I'll never shut the fuck up. But I love the iconic moment of of the resumes of putting the headshots over their face and holding their resumes. Iconic, it's not my favorite because I think it's just become the iconic image and it's it's so overdone now and referenced. But mm-hmm. I wonder just how that started, and I think it's just so brilliant because they're just standing there, literally, am I my resume? Yeah, you are, and holding up your headshot, and yep. it's something you you kind of have to do as an actor and a performer. Um, and now it's a moment like when I saw this revival at City Center that gets applause and people freak out for it. And it's mm-hmm. one of the stillest moments of the show because there's no movement. So no movement. I think that's that's such a cool thing. I don't know. I don't know. who. It's almost like a police lineup, you know? Yeah, it, it's it's so because it's such a harsh image. They're not people in those moments. They are hiding behind their resumes and their mm. and their headshots. It's the show is so earnest. But and it's and it is a love letter to show business while also being very truthful about the hardships of it. And mm. you know, they t- it's so crazy. They talk about the you know how Broadway is dying, the chorus is shrinking, and 
you know, we've been talking about this for years and it's still kind of that way. And a chorus line is coming at a point in Broadway musicals where, you know, New York was struggling and there were hit Broadway shows, but nothing that was like really kind of grabbing America and saying, like, come to New York and see this show. Uh, we had shows like Company and Follies, which was taking New York by storm, at least culturally speaking. And we had shows like The Wiz and um, Shenandoah, which like would run for a few years and did well, but they mm-hmm. weren't like everyone ar- across the country had to come and see it. Like it wasn't all of America was talking about these shows. I know. We forget uh, that in the Broadway community sometimes. It's like we might know the truth about what happened with Funny Girl, but this person across the country doesn't give two craps and just yeah. knows maybe it's playing somewhere. Well, I, I would I think. I think a lot of well, the funny girl drama bad, actually has become, <laughs> I think a lot of the funny girl drama has actually become national news in a in a weird way. Like, I think that's the first Broadway yeah. show probably since like Hamilton where yeah. people who aren't necessarily in theater are like, oh, I heard that there's drama there or like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I yeah. that, that has come up in my conversation. For example, because we have a huge celebrity in the lead, but you yeah. know, most of the time it's like, people aren't thinking that. And I, that's why I loved reading too. When a chorus line was a big hit, people would show up and it was sold out. But it was good for Broadway because then people would walk down the street and see what else was playing and maybe grab tickets for that. Yep, absolutely. It it was having a big hit of a hit of that magnitude is always good for Broadway because mm-hmm. it draws attention to other shows. And it it just the only thing it doesn't do is, you know, when there's a sweep at the Tonys and nothing else can get awarded. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, again, you know, why people kind of always had issue with Donna McKechnie winning actress when there's no real lead in the chorus line. And oh, by the way, you know, she beat out Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera in Chicago. And how is that fair? I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, no, it's what it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, Gwen already had four Tonys by that point. She didn't need any more. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, Cheetah would get her two later on. It's good things come to those who who wait and and continue to do the work. It's fine. Yeah, um, Jennifer Coolidge is getting awards now, guys. Remember? Finally! That. It took forever. Mm, it did. Yes, forever. but now she is best in show. <laughs> Ooh, let's see what you did there. Shit! Made it through high school without growing tits! <laughs> line has a bunch of that and one of my favorites is, is um in hello 12 hello 13 hello love aka the yes. montage it's so much of it but it's when we get to the this the second part after uh greg's monologue of the do you want to feel anything else and i thought of myself no i don't which is a great moment mm. and if you listen to the opening night audio on broadway the audience loses their fucking mind for that joke it's great yeah. but we get to the cacophony part um the diaphragm and live as an ashtray um yeah. uh you hear um like the drum just it's so many times the drums just going like bada 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 and <laughs> They get to that, um, my only adolescence, where did it go? Oh, what's so? And and it's so good. It's like you hear the orchestra getting, it just keeps growing in pitch. It goes, ba, 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 ba. It's mm. orchestrations where it goes up the scale subtly and you don't realize it. Yes. And all you just feel is the excitement is so yeah. great. Like they do the same thing in music in the mirror when Cassie's singing the play me the music and you just hear orchestra like ba, 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 ba. Yeah. I think it's also in the part of your world reprise in the Little Mermaid movie when she's singing mm. that I don't know when, I don't know how. It just, oh, just yeah, up, yeah. up, 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 up. It's, 
it's so good viral on tiktok it is so good and i think it's it's we we've become a society where everything has to be showy and like they really make a big thing out of that and so to do it subtly i think just proves the fact that musically the show is working on so many different levels i mean even mm-hmm. something else that randomly comes to my head that's one of my favorite moments is a musical moment and it's so simple but it's just when Val is like, tits, where are my tits? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's funny because it's a funny line, but also because she's singing in a way that's traditionally, uh, you know, more operatic and, and in her, you know, higher range that wouldn't, you wouldn't sing a line like that. Like maybe yeah. a rocker would say that. And there's just all these moments and they come at the right time. The pacing is so wonderful. It's like right when you need that laugh, it comes in there for you. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a constant yeah. drumbeat of, of fun. Yeah, there's there's a drive to it. There's a tempo to it. And Michael Bennett was a master of of building something. I mean, Mm. I talk about all the time. uh, And it's a famous story with Turkey Lurkey time, right? Like they go out of town because, you know, again, always about the truth, Michael. So (laughs) Turkey Lurkey time takes place in a Christmas party at the office. So he's like, oh, everyone's drunk. It's going to be sloppy. The secretary is going to put on a little show. They do it in Boston and it dies. And they're like, well, we're going to cut it. He goes, no, 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 I can fix it. I can fix it. He's like, I tried to go for truth. Scrap that pure musical theater know-how and just made it build. So it just started with Donna Bayork and Margot Sappington mm-hmm. and it's them and they're, they're a tight little unit and it's cute. And the choreography gets a little bigger with the three of them. And then slowly like other people start joining them. And so the whole office is joining them and it, everyone's doing it in unison. It's this great big moment. And I always say like Turkey Lurkey time should be a case study for any um, aspiring choreographers on how to build a number. And that's also the truth of a chorus line because you talk about like the tits where are my tits. Like it's funny yeah. because we hear Val sing it first a cappella. So we hear the yeah. line and then yeah. she sings it again in that uh, legit tits where are my tits. Yeah. But the whole montage, like it's sort of piecemeal, right? Like it'll build, it'll build, and then it'll come back down. Yeah. And then it'll be a legato moment and then it'll be a fun moment. And yeah. then we get to the part where it's the cacophony and everyone's overlapping and we have Maggie going, Life is an ashtray. And yeah. It's, and and it builds to the Paul uh, uh, Paul. What am I going to say when he calls on me? And then the over the um, so canon of my only adolescence. Where did it go? So thirteen, morning, man, this thing. And then we explode to that final. Wow, <laughs> oh, there's a lot. Yeah. Boom! I am not. And it it so connects good. also to uh, the finale one in this way, which is um, again Michael Bennett knowing how to build a number, give an audience what they want, but not give it to them up front. Mm. Uh, Steven Schwartz does a has a video on YouTube where he talks about I swear I'm all over the place but there's a point to this he <laughs> talks like about when he wrote The Wizard and I for mm. for Alphaba yes. she had another song called Making Good and it wasn't working so they mm. got back to like okay it's The Wizard and he goes okay he goes I have Adina Menzel I'm writing a song for Adina Menzel what do we know about Adina and this is you know fresh off of Wild Party and Aida and he's like she belts she's a she's a big old belter he goes I'm and he goes I'm thought about when I saw a chorus line downtown to the public and I kind of went in and you know and this was in the 70s when Steven Schwartz thought he was hot shit because he had three hit shows he had Godspell, Pippin and Magic Show because I'm sitting there I'm crossing my arms like I'm I'm liking the show but I get to the finale and I see that they're all you know together and I'm like oh a chorus line they're gonna kick it's gonna it's gonna be them kicking all the time and they got mm-hmm. onto this line and they didn't kick they went back they, and they did a new moment he's like oh okay he goes, well, I get the next chorus, they're gonna kick. And they get to the yeah. front and they didn't kick. And he goes, Oh, so like they <laughs> like the number just kept going and building and they still didn't kick. And he goes, So I started the number being like, Oh, they're gonna kick, it's gonna be so stupid. 
And then each time they didn't kick, he would be like, when's the kicking going to happen? Until the end, they finally do kick. And he goes, they're kicking, they're kicking, yay! Yes, yeah. So he's like, if it, if I could go from cynical to joyous about that, it's like I did the same thing with Wizard and I. Where I'm like, I'm not going to have Adina belt until the very end of the with me and I'll stand there with a wizard. Yeah. And yeah. it's a great, it's a great example build. of building. You got to build. And people, it, I'm reminded of it too. You know, a lot of good acting teachers will talk about that, even with a monologue or an audition scene. While, you know, you want to hook them in the beginning, if you blow everything right in the beginning, there's going to be nowhere to go. So you got to you got to build up. And I think they do that brilliantly, too, with even just the blocking and the choices of when someone's going to be alone on stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only certain moments when the line actually leaves. You know, they they do that very strategically. Uh, What's is the first one? Nothing. Is that the first time everybody leaves? The first time I think is at the ballet when Sheila begins singing. The, the, oh, yes. Yeah. So I've the seen that. Sometimes that. they're behind them. Sometimes they're in it. Sometimes they leave. Sometimes it's just a three. Yeah. I feel like um, when there's one person, it might be. I don't think the line. Yeah. The line doesn't leave the stage. They just walk away from the line and the lights are low enough that you don't oh, see yeah. them. Because then they have to start dancing on Maggie's big line. I think everyone yeah. leaves the stage when Diana starts nothing. Yeah, when they go, okay, nothing. go. Yeah. yeah and they hold like hands the, and they like. Jolt yeah, that together. Christmas. I mean, even the way they leave is is brilliant. They're making use of everything, like you were kind of talking about before, or even the when they're on stage and they have to pass their hats down the line without anybody mm-hmm. seeing uh, uh, when their backs are turned. So I just think that is so cool how they how they do that. And that is one of my other favorite moments. Is nothing. I mean, I'm just obsessed with that song. I think it's so beautiful. It's a I great song. Way it's it's like she's trying to be this great actor and and feel something and she can't feel it. She can't be the ice cream cone and, and do this, whatever. And then by the end, she has a moment where she should feel something, but she feels nothing. And I think that just speaks to, I guess, the truth of life to get back to his truth. It's like when you are in these actual moments, you never feel how you think you're going to feel. So if someone gives you a scene and you're whoever just died, you think you would cry. But then when that moment maybe happens in real life, you're laughing because you're so like unhinged. I don't know what it is. So I, that yeah. song to me on so many levels is it's just Do, beautiful. I know that yeah, well, I mean, I mean, let's be real. She feels nothing because the guy's a dick. And... Well, there's there's that too, but I think on a on a deeper level when I was like re-listening to it, I was I was just making up my own interpretation, which is that it's like that that acting choice is mm-hmm. is never what you think it is. It's never the truth. Uh yeah. but then on a funny level, it's obviously because he's an asshole. And that's also very relatable because, you yeah. know, maybe that was Michael's way of putting his own music in the mirror his own mirror image in the show mm. it's uh, <laughs> they, they so i know that that number comes directly from priscilla lopez i think at LaGuardia, mm-hmm. uh and the teacher she had and, and when someone told her that the teacher died she said good and mm. like everyone in the circle was like how can you say that that's a person who died and she was like yeah and he wasn't a good person um and like especially not to me it's it, that number i think we all can relate to it if you're an actor and you went to school for acting having like a teacher who you just did not gel with and rather than them acknowledging that it was that it's oil and water being like oh you're not on on my plane then then you're never going to make it it's like because i know i know more i know better and like obviously teachers teach because they have they have the knowledge but for something like performing it's a very no person is the same no person gets the the uh, to a point the same way mm-hmm. and everyone has different styles and everyone has different tastes uh i don't know if i'll have this in the avenue q episode with sam Seamock or not i haven't edited it yet 
but we had a teacher at Emerson <laughs> who everyone was like super in love with and and it's very um Mr. Carp from nothing where it's like everyone's like oh yes I I very much feel all the things you're telling me to feel it's wonderful mm-hmm. and you're the lone asshole being like I'm sorry I'm not getting any of this and I in fact I kind of think this is all stupid yes. can I do something different and rather than like embracing the idea of oh maybe this method doesn't work for you it's like oh you don't like this method well you'll never make it exactly we've all been in those classrooms where it's like close your eyes you're in the bathroom you're brushing your teeth that's not what you do when you're brushing your teeth but when when you it doesn't fit your method and like what you said the truth is that and i think it's true with anything else in life everything's subjective and we all have our own ways Mm -hmm. and unfortunately in the arts i don't know if you feel this way but i find that in a lot of classes across the board there are so many people that make the classroom their show and make it about them like this mr carp versus making it about the students and teaching. And I have immense respect for teachers and the best teachers are the ones that actually care mm-hmm. about fostering their students and seeing what works for them. Not the ones that are, you know, telling you the story about how when they were on set with this person and da, 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 and just giving you a monologue for an hour, you know? My Mr. Carp would not shut up about when he was on a soap opera. And I'm like, I uh, couldn't give two shits. There you go. Uh, you know, <laughs> the best teachers are the ones who have a passion for the craft and want to share it with you, knowing yes. that in the arts, we all have different ways of getting there mm-hmm. it's those who are like my way is the only way and my mm-hmm. taste is the only taste now of course i am famously uh i stick to my guns about my taste but i'm also aware that my tastes are not everyone's tastes so when but i you tell also you have a podcast where you interview people and so you're open to having conversations and listening to other sides too you know of course uh, at this moment no one has either disagreed with me or changed my mind about anything he just but... muted me for the record no i'm just kidding <laughs> no, um... he's like exit zoom no, I no, I definitely had guests who, you know, are not as either passionate about a show that we're covering as I am, or like maybe they're more passionate than I am. And that's totally fine. It's always interesting to hear those perspectives because it can make you think differently about something. And a voice from down at the bottom of my soul came up to the top of my head. And a voice from down at the bottom of my soul. Here is what it said. This man is nothing. Most talented, I guess, singers for the way we hold these screaming belters and mean girls and things to such a high standard these days. Mm -hmm. There are shows like a chorus line where you don't necessarily have to be, quote unquote, the best singer. There are Mm -hmm. the, I guess, I don't want to name people because I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there are these really famous Broadway stars that don't technically have the best voice, Mm -hmm. but it comes down to the best storyteller. And so to see Glenn Close get so cracked out. Uh, I'm not knocking her voice. I'll, anything, I'll, like, I'll say names. Bernadette Peters is not the greatest vocalist in the world, but, but okay. the but the emotion with which she carries through into her voice is what makes her so special. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the my issue with the high belting singing, and I I had a whole post about this that might have gone viral a year ago. No, no, oh, no, snap, crackle game. pop, not crackle pop. Uh, it started with, um, I like to play a game when I see a Broadway show. It's, uh, is this a good score? Or is the actor just singing high? And <laughs> or do they have notes? <laughs> or do they have notes? But so much of like performance today for audience members and and young fans, it's you know when it comes to acting, we were talking about this like with the acting teachers. It's, you know, you can, everyone can make a case for, you know, whose acting does this and whose acting does that because there's no metric system to measure it all. Mm. Singing, you can go like, well, 
they're a better singer because they hit a higher note much longer. It's like, are they a better singer? Like they have a wonderful instrument, but like singing is more than just the notes you hit. It's mm-hmm. the quality of your voice, the sound of your voice. The If there's anything behind the words you were singing, uh, everyone on this podcast knows how much Carousel is my favorite musical. I hate uh, singer firsts on that show, even though it is a big score, it is mm-hmm. an acting show. So the Billies I've seen, like, and I will throw him under the bus. Like when I saw Nathan Gunn do it at Lincoln Center with Kelly O'Hara as Billy Bigelow, I hated him because there was absolutely no emotion behind any of his words. Like soliloquy was just a vocal display. And I hated every second of it. Uh, like I yeah. need connection to it. And everyone in this show, in this original company of a chorus line, bringing it back to our topic. Uh, yes. Very few go. of them. Yeah. Very few of them have great voices i mean i think donna has a wonderful voice and is definitely like one of the best vocal cassies of all time but like mm-hmm. kelly bishop doesn't have a great voice pamela blair has a fine voice it's not great priscilla lopez has a very strong voice but she's like you know she's not patty lapone but mm-hmm. there's a quality to each of their voices there's an energy and a connection they have with the material that just makes it all work so well you know mm-hmm. Yeah, I, love it. I, love it I so. think it's that storytelling first, like like we're saying, and audiences yeah. can sniff that from a mile away. I mean, I would even argue screaming now is kind of the trend and everybody's singing so high. The pendulum always swings back the other way. So I'm sure we'll go way really, really, really down, down Patrick Page Town uh, one day. But I feel like audiences, they can hear your range. So if you're singing at the top of it, it's impressive to them because you're at yeah. the top. If you're singing at the bottom, whatever. But if you're telling the story, it's just a whole different connection and a whole different level. And I mean, there are people that remember Ben Platt, I guess, in Dear Evan Hansen, breaking down and can't, and can't even sing the notes because he's not yeah. crying. Yeah. Uh, and that hits you more than if he was maybe shedding a tear and, and belting it out, in yeah. my opinion. Because it's. I would, like, I would like a little halfway. Like, I want, I always want everyone to be at a Ruthie Henshaw in the Les Mis concert level of like, <laughs> it's enough emotion that I believe it. But the notes yeah. are coming out and they sound quite good. Um, yeah. And I, See, I like a little I, SNL Kristen Wiig, Fran Armisen on a Weekend Update. They're giving me the fake song that they're making up, but they're also crack, cracking up and hysterically laughing. Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, how is, oh, I will, I'll throw Mean Girls under the bus. Like there are songs in Mean Girls that I don't like because it is them throwing it all out there at the beginning. And the poor actresses have to worry about the instrument rather than the craft because mm. Jeff Richmond's is like, okay, Apex Predator, uh, Barrett and Erica, here you go. D's and E's right out the gate. Uh, yeah. And I, I think the one number he does that actually builds in vocal pyrotechnics is World Burn. Uh, mm. Like starts off very low and it builds to a higher. Yeah, I don't right. I don't like how it ends. I think it ends a little kind of, oh, I watch the world burn. Bam. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it gets to that moment very, very nicely. I just mm. think the button is bad, but uh, <laughs> she is on an elevator. <laughs> she is on an elevator. They have her go up and down. Yeah, yeah. So, but they, they do deal with that in a chorus line. These things we're kind of talking about, which are the standards artists are held to at, at these high levels like Broadway. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a, a different level, it deals with just in entertainment in general, how they need to get surgery and, and look a certain way. I mean, there's all these standards that people have to deal with. And I think, too, that makes, to get back to Chorus Line, you know, relatable because yeah. um, they're showing how it's not really sustainable in, in a way. Or people are telling them it's not sustainable and they'll have to retire by age 35, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that it's still 
it's still going on. I'm like, who's yeah. making these trends? Okay, tastemakers, let's calm down. I know. But I, it's so interesting to see how they all sort of approach it. So like we get to that. We're talking about the moment we're talking about is at the end of the show when Paul, who has had, you know, a very dramatic monologue, which hasn't aged as well only because. Intermission? Dra- inter- hmm? Intermission, you mean? Just kidding. Oh, I actually, Paul's monologue. Some people call it intermission because oh. that's when people go to the bathroom. But I, People go I to the bathroom it- during that monologue? Oh, yeah. for the cast. Uh, no, oh, like audience, audience members. I don't. I, I always find it to be very powerful, but there is a joke that people are like, if you've seen the show, that's intermission because it's just long and sad. Oh, and oh if you oh, if you've seen the show, yes. Um maybe. I've just heard I've heard that. I've heard I can't that. imagine I'm not see- it's me. Yeah, I can't imagine seeing the show for the first time and going out at that monologue because the show is the show yeah. teases Paul and the show teases Cassie really well. Yeah. Uh, up until that moment. Like we get hints that Cassie is someone different than everyone else in the mm. line. And we get hints about Paul's life that's not great. Um when oh, yeah, you know, from the start. Yeah, like when, you know, when he's singing, Who Am I anyway? And then when Zach asks about his life and Paul's like, I don't want to talk about it. And you get like little pieces like I had a sister who died. Like, I don't want to talk yeah. about this. And we have the what am I gonna say when he calls, he on, calls me. on me? Yeah. So like we the show hints that like Paul's got something mm-hmm. that's not as cute. And it's not but and a lot of Paul's life still holds up as very tragic. The one thing that doesn't hold up as tragic mm-hmm. is the drag, because now drag has become this like internationally recognized art form. Yes. I actually saw a chorus line with someone who's on drag race right now, which is really funny, just at, at like a community theater. No way. Uh, yeah. I, I, I see. I've actually never watched drag race, but um, I appreciate it. A- Amethyst. Amethyst. I don't know if you watch. That is saw... familiar. Yeah, I do. And watch, they, yeah. And they play Paul. Good for them. Good they were great. for them. Good for them. Yeah, sorry. Um, but so you know, Paul, you know, dropped out of school young, was openly gay, was sexually abused by these strange men at the movies when he was a kid, and goes into drag. That was his entrance into show business, and his parents find out and all this stuff, and it's very sad. And then while they're learning a tab combination, because Zach is still stalling, he's not sure yet who he wants. He doesn't know if this audition has gone the way he wanted it to Mm. paul has the injury the famous injury that michael bennett uh mimicked to get a reaction out of everybody and has to go off and the question comes what do you do when you can't dance anymore and everyone has different responses and it Mm. goes not beyond just dancing but also like the career that they've had right you know who's gonna try to keep going in the line in the in the journey that they've had so far and like sheila's aware that there's an end to the road but she's still gonna kind of try to ride it out uh as long as she can she's you know she's about to turn 30 she's real glad and i think she knows at this point she's not going to become a broadway star but she can keep being employed in this line of work only for so long get her eyes done things like that mm-hmm. but then you have people like val or you have, first of all you have someone like don who's like i want to go into directing i don't want to just sing and dance anymore i want to create stuff yeah then you have someone like val who's like truly a survivor you know mm-hmm. She comes to New York and she knows that she's good. She's better than so many other people and realizes, okay, it's the way that I look. And rather than get upset about it, she goes, I can do something about that. I can change yes. how I look. And, and, and she that's the difference with people. That mm-hmm. self-awareness will get you so far because there are yep. people that will, just won't admit to themselves. And if you won't admit that, that there's a certain problem, and I'm not saying look should ever be a problem. I, I think that's Kind of it, like that's a, a whole other conversation, thing. sure. Yeah. But in general, you know, you can't fix the problem and work on it, work on your notes or whatever it is if you're not aware no. of it. In order so. to in order to make updates to the table, you have to first get a seat at the table. And True. someone like Val, who comes from the Midwest and you know, 
we learn in and was raped at a very young age and is, was an orphan like you go through that stuff and you make it to new york and and you're like what am i gonna do go home fuck that no i'm gonna mm. make this work for me and i can't get pissy this is the system that's in place i'm gonna get myself in the system which she does and it works and she gets mm. the job in this show but she's taught when they're talking about like dancing and uh she says maybe i'll open up a studio and other people are like oh i just want to get fat yeah val goes i love that <laughs> so it's so great but val goes yeah you start taking acting classes. she's like i'm taking acting classes and she's very honest she goes i'm not very good right now but i am getting better and <laughs> and, and she's like, you can talk too i think it's no, such a great line it. she goes yeah. no it's fabulous when you learn you can talk too yeah val is a great role she's and such i wish a great role and i wish people knew how to play her um mm. have you watched the documentary every little step a long time ago. I was trying to rewatch it before this, but you've got to pay for it. And yeah, no, 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 ma'am. He cheap. Not when I pay for all these other platforms. You know what I'm saying? Oh, no, ma'am. But when, um, yes. I think it's on I think it's on Broadway HD, but I don't have that subscription and I don't need it. Yeah. I don't need it. I don't need her. Yeah. Uh you're there. You're you're in the throes. We're in it. Way. Uh but it's so fascinating to watch them audition for the revival of a chorus line. And ironically, that documentary ended up was the sort of movie version of a chorus line that Michael Bennett wanted to make. Uh, because the movie that they made, they made absolutely without him. Because you know he he sold the movie rights and had this developmental deal, developmental deal at a movie studio. But basically, just learned all they wanted to do was make a movie of a chorus line. They didn't really want him. And so when he was trying to make the movie, he wanted it to sort of be a meta version where it was people auditioning for a chorus line. Mm. Um, so all the material from the show would be in the movie as audition the stuff. Project, the... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and the studio was like, no, we want a chorus line. And the documentary, Every Little Step, basically is the movie Michael Bennett wanted to make. But it's interesting watching people audition for these roles. And, you know, some of them have it in this in the rehearsal room and then they get to the final callback and they just don't have it. And ultimately, the role of Val comes down to, um, oh God, it's Nicole. I forget her last name, but she was Brooke Wyndham in Legally Blonde. I don't remember her full name. Forgive me, Nicole. No, but she's fantastic. I know she is great. Um, and then the other one is Jessica Lee Golden, who does yes. get it. Yeah, and she's you no know, comes from like New Jersey with no credits or whatever. And she's yeah. an amazing dancer. But what really ends kind up making person, yeah, so kind. What makes her end up getting the role is Nicole thinks Val because Val curses all the time. Val's got to be like a tough bitch. That's mm. not who Val is. Val has the mouth of a sailor, but she's got the heart of a good person. Like she's yes. not tough and the way that pamela blair plays her and when you watch the video of the original company online or you listen to the audio of opening night all the things she says she says it with such earnesty um she's like i look like a fucking nurse she like realizes it to herself when she's when she's talking about showing up to new york all in white and she goes i look like a fucking nurse and nicole (laughs) in the audition she says it so like aggressively she's like i look like a fucking nurse and they're like you're not like street tough you know like you're a yeah. survivor but you're you're oh you know hyper energetic and you're positive and then the way the panel Blair says about acting class she goes no it's great i mean it's fabulous when you learn you can talk too <laughs> and that's what makes it funny and yeah. i think that's what made jessica lee golden get it is that she just mm. was very simple about it so good and it's leaning into that opposite which can be hard as a performer because you're like it's all right here on the page so it's hard not to just lean into that but mm-hmm. the best characters are the ones that lean into the opposite. They have the hard exterior, but on the inside, that means there's something really tragic going on, which they don't really tap into with Val in in the show. They don't get into how like tragic her life or the person who it's based on might be a couple people, but whatever yeah. that life really was. Um, but I think that's again, because she's at this one audition and maybe she's not necessarily going to go that far. So she goes to the 
it's actually interesting. She doesn't go inward. She goes outward and she talks about her looks because yeah. it's too maybe tragic inside. Yeah. Well, so that's in that number and which is never on any cast recording. It's mm. not on the original. It's not in the revival cast recording. And yeah. the revival cast recording has the whole montage, mm. uh, which I love. Although the cuts to the montage in the OBC are still pretty iconic. But <laughs> they always change the names, too. Even in the City Center version, they don't they don't call them montages. They give them all different names, which is interesting. Yeah, I think it's like Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love. Yeah, uh, nothing. Mother, nothing. Yeah, um, yeah giving yeah. the ball. But when in and while Bobby's doing his bit, which is so good. And oh, yeah. we we get into the inner monologues of people on the line figuring out like, okay, he wants to hear about my life. Like, what 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 do I got? What do I got? And so we have Judy Turner, real name Lana Turner. She's she's like just trying to think of like, okay, like any stories. Do I have any stories? Yeah. And Richie's just thinking like, okay, like if I'm next, what do I do? And Val reveals like a very tragic life, very matter of factly. Um, orphan at three, mother and dad both gone, raised by a sweet ex-con, and then mm-hmm. tied up and raped at seven. Yeah. And then she goes, nope, nope, got to keep it clean, nothing too obscene. And so she yeah. does tits and ass, which, you know, it, it's, you know, about plastic surgery and she's cursing, which was yeah. very, uh, you know, revolutionary for the time to talk about it so openly in a musical. Yeah. But she's not talking about anything traumatic. It's it, that surgery is something that led to success for her. As you mm. said, she's leading outward, not inward. And it's not that it's a yeah. lie. She's being very truthful and honest. But she's being very careful about what she reveals. Yes, which so many people are in these scenarios and these auditions or interviews or whatever it is. And that moment does get kind of brushed over. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, the the, the truth about uh, being raped and tied up and raised by an ex-con. I think it all depends on who's playing it. Because some yeah. people actually will laugh at that part. Like, it's, it's like a funny thing. And then they hear the word rape and they're like, oh, wait, what just happened? Yep. So it's a very quick moment that I think a lot of people don't even remember about her. They just remember the, the tits and the ass. Because it's yep. like this huge, funny number and so needed. I mean, it, it comes at a great time again. Yeah. It's so, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I guess you could also like argue if you played it, is Val actually going through her life in that mo- in that number and as it is? Or is she just trying to think of a tragic backstory to tell? Uh, yeah. I think it's the truth. But I'm sure someone could be like, no, she's like trying to pitch in her oh, head like okay something yeah what's like mm. the most what's the most heartbreaking thing i could tell him uh mm. but that's not really who she is or what she's about um yeah. so yeah and then i mean a lot of people share their truths that are embarrassing if not necessarily traumatic paul's is the only one that's like something that like stayed with him in a negative way yeah and he yeah. gets actually used to something before that clicked with me which is that him and cassie are the parallels of the not necessarily the leads but the people that they're teasing and that you're mm-hmm. building up to And it's interesting because I think Cassie getting the job works also because you need that yin and yang. So if she doesn't get the job, it's, it's the same ending as Paul. Yeah. He gets injured and it's also tragic and you can't have those two tragic endings with these characters you've been kind of building up to. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. If, if, if Paul can't get the job, we at least need Cassie to get it. 1000%. Yeah. I think it's the Paul injury that makes Zach actually come down. Right. Uh, the first time Zach comes down after the opening is after Paul's monologue and he gives him a hug and then Zach is on stage Yes, uh, okay. when they begin one and then he goes off that he goes back to the God mic while they're doing one and that's when mm-hmm. Cassie pops the head and he keeps saying stop popping the head Cassie don't pop the head Cassie because yes. Cassie is trying to sell it and she's been a, we find out she's been a featured dancer she went out to California to be a star but she's not a star she can't act but she's had like success commercials she, right <laughs> yeah she's almost squeezed a roll of toilet paper and there she's a go. special she's a she's a dancer she's a special dancer but she's a dancer 
And she's trying to sell the number and Zach makes it very clear. I need everyone to blend. So every time Mm. she just extends it a little too high or she pops her head, he yells at her. He says, nope, don't do that. And so he makes her do it again with the boys and then has her do it again until she's doing it like everyone else. And that's when Zach comes downstage to talk to her. Mm. And, you know, basically she berates him being like, stop torturing me. Like either, you know, treat me like everyone else or, you know, or cut me. And, and we, and everything that like he's having a problem with at the audition with her is his problem, not hers. She's just trying to book a job. She's really not trying mm. to bring up the past of their relationship and his success. Um, yeah. And yeah. And when he's, and he, he, it's clear that he treats the ensemble, the chorus kind of at the bottom of the food chain, like so much of Broadway, because when he shows Cassie, everyone dancing goes, is this what you want? And you kind of see them all mm. marching forward, kind of like a Nazi kick line. Uh, it's meant to sort oh, of be, yeah, yeah. it's meant to be sort of be like tragic, but then Cassie looks mm-hmm. at it and she looks at him and she goes, yes, I'd be proud. I'll dance with any of them. They're all wonderful. I would be so happy yeah. to dance with them. Mm-hmm. And I love that. She's done everything no, I right. I love that too. She has. And that's almost maybe why Michael Bennett himself didn't want Cassie's character to get it in the end, because he almost saw that as a tragic ending. Maybe if we're relating him to Zach, because this lead is like in the chorus line and that, in that creepy way. Bennett looked at Cassie going into the chorus as a step back, but audiences looked at it as a starting over like a it's like mm-hmm. a respawn it wasn't you know losing a level and having to go back one it was just a respawn of the whole game and starting anew mm. do you think anyone's tried to make the the musical that they're <laughs> auditioning for <laughs> that's fascinating what if someone right? wrote a musical and I'm like this is what i imagine the musical a chorus line is auditioning for yeah it's like and cassie like and juliet kind of it's like starting from the ending and and birthing something from there maybe with michael bennett and uh I don't know who else could be the the Shakespeare yeah. and the um, Anne Hathaway if we're going down the Andrew yeah. route. I don't know. I think that's interesting. I also would love your thoughts on the, I happen to think A Chorus Line is one of the few shows that would really work and be fun to watch. And I guess it would depend who makes it, but would be great as a live musical, a live TV musical. Yeah, I think, you, I think you would have to alter some of the dialogue, unfortunately, for network TV, which I hate. Uh, I just haven't really liked any of the live musicals, but I would absolutely watch like a taping of it, like a professional films taping of that production in a theater, like a movie, like the way that Spike Lee did Passing Stranger or something like that. Like really just get in there and capture all mm, of it. I would, yeah. I would, I would be there for that. 1000%. Yeah. And then I envision by the end when they transfer to do the finale, they walk into a different soundstage that actually, or well, it's a theater and it yeah. actually is filled with an audience and a live audience. And then you kind of get to watch that. I don't know. I think that's one of the few ones that would be really fun to see up close. Yeah. It it's also would depend on how it's filmed. And my, yeah. my thing is a lot of these musicals, they're too, I mean, I get it. You got to keep the musicality and the way it's cut, mm-hmm. but they're too quick to kind of cut to these random shots of dancers. I want to see, like, I want to see the dance, you know, I want to see the choreo. Yeah. It's, you have to kind of look at it the way that Fosse would edit his dances in his movies of it's less yeah. about, you want to keep the energy obviously in the editing, but also really remember where the focus is at. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there are some movies where the quick editing works. Like I think the editing in Chicago makes sense. The editing in dream girls yeah. and nine do not. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just about finding like cool shots and cutting mm-hmm. into that for a second. I'm like, but is that where our focus should be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's Chicago, our focus? Yeah. Yeah, where's the it's focus? Where's the, the energy? Oh, yeah. Chicago I simply is... cannot do it alone. I'm like, why don't they slap that song into the Broadway productions? That's one of the best. I think that's one of the best moments in the movie when Catherine Zeta-Jones is, is doing that whole number. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a great number. Wait, did you ask why they didn't put it in the show? It is in the show. 
I simply cannot do it alone. Is that in the Broadway version? Yes. Oh, maybe I blacked yeah. out when I saw it. I saw it a couple times. Yeah. You, you black out every time you see Chicago. It's hard. I'm I seeing do. Chicago again for the first time in 24 years next week. Is is the star power drawing you in? Is, is it a certain person? It is indeed. Speaking of Drag Race, it is Miss Jinx Monsoon, uh, Warner, uh, uh, winner of All-Stars 7 and Season 5. Uh, on that note, we have to take one more break. Oh, bye. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we're back. Um, <laughs> so, Bobby. Chorus Line competed in the 1976 Tony Awards. Uh, it became the longest running show in Broadway history until Cats overtook it. Do you know the other three shows that were up against a Chorus Line that year? I don't think one we just we literally just mentioned one of them five seconds ago. Did we? Oh, Chicago. Chicago was one, yes. One winning zero Tonys. <gasps> no, company was like a year early or two earlier. Company was five years earlier. Oh and, okay. and won the Tony. But we have another we do have another Sondheim musical this year. Oh, it's Sandy. It is Sandy. It wouldn't it wouldn't be. Ah, give me a hint. Um it doesn't take place in America. I'm bad on the spot. It doesn't take place in America. It's Stephen Sondheim. It's a divisive one. It's not one of the most beloved. Ooh. Okay, I have a couple in my head. Should I just start shouting Sondheim shows over the rooftops? Yep. Not Assassins. Not um, uh, Sunday in the Park with George. Because uh, that's kind of in France. Kind of. Well, I guess I don't know. No. Uh, Sweeney Todd? Nope. Sweeney Todd is three years later. Damn, I'm bad with my ears. What is this? It is Pacific Overtures. Oh, see, that's one of the ones I don't know. So I, I would never have gotten that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it did win set design and costume design. Well, yes, this is how my brain works, unfortunately. Uh, the fourth <laughs> show is a, for- is a show called Bubbling Brown Sugar, I believe. Um, that's what I want to do after this. Bubble, You're going to bubble brown sugar? Yeah, and eat it. I'm, I'm a sugar fiend. I love sugar, especially brown <laughs> sugar. It's so tasty. It's good with caramel with yes. butter. Uh, what's yeah. it you put that over some saltines or some crackers oh, then melt some chocolate put it over that put it in the mm-hmm. oven you got yourself toffee absolutely oh god i love that uh <laughs> i also will do if i'm making like waffles or pancakes and i have a banana around i will take brown sugar butter uh and some sliced bananas and melt that together and that becomes like a banana syrup it's so good banana foster situation you can put some top some like cinnamon on that i love that i'm gonna try that 
Hallelujah, baby. Um, different show. <laughs> it's Bubbling Brown Sugar was the fourth show. Uh, wow. Course Line did have a revival, as we all know, in 2006. Uh, that ran for about a year and a half. It was decently received, but it was yeah. just such a museum piece. It was like that. And I know people who went into that revival uh, later on, and they said that, like, Bob Avian and Bayork basically were like, okay, so then you put your hand here on this line and and do this at this moment. And it was, like, very yeah. meticulous. And I, I don't want to, you know project but i think when byork did the city center production maybe she learned a bit from that broadway revival like i'm gonna still give mm. the staging as it is but like let like the actors like find their way into it rather than be like and then here you put your pinky out on this yes. moment it was a be- it was a brilliant production i think the Ugh. the city center one and there's rumors that it's gonna come back for the anniversary right yeah there's rumors for the 50th anniversary and i guess 2025 it'll come back which i wouldn't be upset about people mm talk about like well shouldn't we have new directors try it and new choreographers try it and yes Mm. but again because of the workshop creative process on this show you know all that staging is part of the it's it's it's, as uh as um vital to it as any of the writing because like moments in music would be written to uh partner with a piece of staging and a line would hit for a certain moment of lighting like it's there was no moment in the development of a chorus line that was like, okay, here's the full scene and song. Now let's stage it. It was like everything just yeah. sort of kind of happened in this weird orgy of creativity. Mm-hmm. And that original staging, it's not just iconic, but it's it's just part of the fabric of the show. Yeah, you and I just I don't tangle that DNA. You really can. And like I'm sure people have tried and, and I would love to see what they do, but you're never going to be able to unweave it but i think people just want to make their mark and i get that but i think this is just a show it's one of the few shows where it's like just bring yourself to it and let let the show ride it out you know yeah exactly i have seen it done with different choreo and it's not my favorite yeah um i haven't i mean it depends where you see it but i haven't hated it but i just think if you're gonna do that show it's either you're doing it to uphold the story and tell the story and and show the beautiful art to people or you give it a totally new take. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any medium. I guess you could just do little changes in between, which I think City Center maybe was like kind of that medium bridge. But yeah. um, I don't know. I, I, it, I wouldn't know until I saw it, I guess. I suppose, yeah. I mean, still within the structure of, of what's there. I mean, you can't really, I don't know. I'm just like, what, what would you reinvent? Like the show just, it's there. It's there. And you have to keep it you have to keep it in the time period it's in. The sound of the show is very much the time period it's in and the references and the way they talk about the industry, while it's universal, it's still rooted in that time. You wouldn't update Fiddler, right? No. But maybe that's why we can do the the show of a chorus line. Maybe maybe we should run with that. See what it is. The show, the show that's being auditioned for in a chorus line. Yeah. Yeah. They don't I don't think they say the name of the show, do they? They sure don't. What would be a good name for the for the fake show in a chorus line? Ooh, it's got to be her. I don't know. It's glitters and gold. Yeah, yeah, it's glitters and her. gold. <laughs> it's well because uh, yeah. Um, this is what you call traveling. I don't know. Uh, I'm just trying to find lines from one and be like golden hour. Yeah, I guess just one or yeah, sensation. I don't know. Singular sensation. I don't know. Um. Uh. Uh, the golden wheel. I mean, it could really be anything. The golden, golden. age, the, golden <laughs> the gilded age. Now we're just getting into Christine Baranski's oh, Nixon territory. Yeah. Oh, when's that coming back? Come on. 
I can't come late enough as far as I'm concerned. See, you know what it is? I I call that a a do something else while you're watching show. Like it's Uh easy to have it in the background. It's comforting. Not much happens quickly. So you can still stay up to date on it. Absolutely. Uh, It's it's like a Broadway red carpet. I mean, come on. You got all these amazing, you got burn. you got a, not Bernadette. Maybe she'll show up season two. (gasps) Oh my God. What would I do if Bernadette Peter showed up? Did we just cast her? Why isn't she on that show? Actually, now that what is, what is Bernadette Peter so goddamn busy with that she can't go into the Gilded Age and make me waste an hour of my life watching? She does a lot of, a lot of animal work. Okay. She's working with a lot of animals. Yeah, I know. They're, that's all very. She's an amazing person. Oh, she's, (laughs) she's a, she's a star on and off stage. We love her very dearly. Oh yeah. Um, and she doesn't go out in the sun. She is the well, pale swim of all time. Yeah, pale swim of all time. <laughs> She's got that hair. That hair is is ready. That hair has been the same since she came out. I don't know if she wears wigs or what, but she looks yeah. great. Well, and there, there's some dying going on there. Let's just be clear. There's a <laughs> there, that there's some dying in that in that hair. It's fine. No shame in it. You do you do you. Sheila's gonna get her eyes done. Val got her boobs and butt <laughs> done. No shame in it. If it's if it's what you want. If it's your journey. You if it's your path. That. Yeah. Yes. Um, if you were to be in a chorus line. Do you have a role that you would like most want to play? All of them. I would see, I listen to that show and I feel like I can be in it. And then I, I come back to reality. It would take a lot of work. Maybe I could do it one day. I don't know. But oh. I think, hmm. I mean, Bobby seems like he would be so much fun. Yeah. I think the the female roles, you know, depending on who's directing and what happens there are definitely juicier and, and in my opinion, better. So mm. no. Listen, I don't know if they would. Well, the women have whatever, more. So- but- the women have more songs. When you think yeah, about it. It, it, yeah, it's like me. I mean, it, it, you know, from nothing to Val's like indelible song that just hits you over the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, as an actor, I think Paul is—he's got the longest monologue. There's a lot to do there. Yeah, but I don't know how much more you can do that hasn't been done already. So. Yeah, I don't. <sighs> any of them. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like it when actors openly weep during paul's monologue which is um if when you watch the documentary that's what like jason tam does in his audition and like it's it's effective it gets him the job but i don't know it's one of those things where like you gotta we were talking about this earlier like you don't come out at an 11 it's you know save the tears until the very 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 last line when he says that's the first time my dad called me his son um Mm. And what's but the it's, truth of that? I mean, what actor auditioning for a show wants to fall apart in front of this highly regarded director? Yeah. I think it's a lot of like, I'm trying not to cry. I'm trying not to cry. I'm trying. And then you get lost in your story and whatever. Oh, one of the things that I take away from my high school drama teacher uh, was he's, he said very early on, and it's always still stuck with me, is like watching someone openly weep is not as interesting as watching someone try really hard not to cry like yes it's they're on the brink and they just can't and they like they're like they won't do it they won't let themselves do it but you know that they're fighting it exactly it's the same with even like i mentioned snl before watching them break and try not to laugh is the most entertaining thing if they were just cracking up it it wouldn't be funny but it's like the someone's doing you're doing something then you're acting it's an action Oh, it's yeah. not trying to cry, trying well, to Well, it's that famous Debbie Downer sketch where they're all cracking, but like oh. they're trying so hard to soldier on. With and Lindsay Lolo? With, with Lilo, yeah, for sure. Who's yeah. Who came back Lindsay to Lolo. us finally. She has returned. Merry Christmas, Jingle Bell Rock. Yeah, she is here. Huh. I didn't, did you see it? How was it? What, Falling for Christmas? Yeah, did you watch it? Of course I watched it. It's insane. Okay. It's stupid and insane. I loved every second of it. <laughs> okay. um, that's, what I, that's what I thought. Yeah, oh God. And like... Santa might like be the reason why she gets a concussion slash amnesia. It's all wild. Oh, damn. Yeah. Twin? 
no she doesn't have a twin just you know she gets she gets proposed to on the top of a mountain in the middle of a snowstorm because that's what you do and she falls and almost dies but just gets amnesia um and court overstreet like has an adorable daughter who's precocious and talks about how christmas is a time for miracles and i'm like oh god here we go with the jesus talk again this girl (laughs) that said robert this has been a delight thank you for coming on today thank Um, you for having me of course, I can sa- safely say we made it to the end of the episode, and I still like you. <gasps> okay, good. I was wondering the whole time, and I, I have some hives that did break out on my thigh here that you can't see, but that's no. that's good. That's the solution oh, I need. Okay. Maybe I want to be part of your world. Uh, oh. So we close out with a game. It's two games, different names, but they are the same game. One is okay. called Six Degrees of Sally Murphy, and the other one is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine DeSori. They're both just six degrees of separation. So what we're got, what we got to do is we got to do a six degrees of separation from the original production of a chorus line to both of these women. Now, oh wow, I can I do see, Sally I'm Murphy. Not familiar with these people, it's fine. I'll help you. I'm gonna do Sally okay. Murphy first because it's very easy. Because so we can't do replacements and we can't do the revival, but we can okay. we can do the original cast and we can do the creative team. So like Michael Bennett, okay, Marvin Hamlish, uh, Robin Wagner, all that stuff. So I will okay. say. There's a pretty direct line to Sally Murphy in that Robin Wagner, the set designer for a chorus line, also designed the set for the Wild Party on Broadway, which Sally Murphy was in. Bing, bang, boom. There you go. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. Thank you so much for playing for me. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm going to need your help. Of, of, of course. That's what I'm here for. Uh, now, now, uh, unfortunately, we could we could do a very easy one, but Kelly Bishop with Kelly Bishop. Uh, but I don't think we can. Is this sacrilege? Am I am I a bad theater kid? What's this person's name? Kelly Bishop. Is, no, I know oh, Kelly Bishop. Janine Tesori. Like, you're like we've just been talking about Kelly Bishop for like two hours. Uh, Janine. Yeah, Tesori, to... the Tony winning composer of Fun Home. Oh, see, I I haven't seen Fun Home, but I know who she is now. I know what she looks like. Yeah. I've seen Kimberly her. Akimbo, Carolina Chain, Sorely Modern yes. Millie, Shrek. What a Violet. Thoroughly Modern Millie loved yeah. it, saw it. But you didn't know her by name. Robert, you are what my listeners would call an uncultured fuck. Now, I'm bad. I'm bad. It's okay. It only fits You're... so much up here. And there's a lot of like, you know, dumb actor things. Like, am I moving my face too much? You're you're thoughts? learning. You're learning, kid. It's fine. Um, That's why I'm here. So we got we to gotta connect to Janine DeSori. Part of me wants to do Kelly Bishop because I know she did Anything Goes with Sutton Foster, who did Millie and Violet with Janine. But Kelly was oh. a replacement in Anything Goes, and that does not count. That's so, not a direct line. Okay. Yeah, we could do Ben. Well, actually, no, another easy one. Michael Bennett directed Dreamgirls with Sherry Lee Ralph, who is in Thoroughly Modern Millie, written by Janine DeSori. Okay. So that's an easy one. That but definitely I, works. I'm literally yeah. Googling right now just so I have a cheat sheet and uh-huh. I can try and help you. But I don't think you need my help because you're no. quite well versed. Thank you. Well, okay. You're a cultured fuck. I'm a cultured fuck. Do we, so let's let's try one more. Okay. Do I want to do a cast member or someone on the creative team again, like Marvin Hamlish, mm. or do I want to do a cast member? Let's do a cast member. Okay. Uh, I don't know all of their work, so I'm gonna let's do Donna because that's just Donna's easiest. She's she's there. Yeah. <laughs> um, she Donna Donna, Donna is around. Uh, <laughs> okay. 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 Also, can you, you should develop an app for this. This is six, uh, six degrees here. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's something of... here. Mm. Uh, okay. Donna McKechnie. Well, there, 
actually, I don't know if that that's not a direct way, but didn't, yeah, didn't Fun Home also win a Pulitzer Prize? They were a finalist. They did not win, unfortunately. Oh, okay. They, they lost I, to the flick, and I'm still pissed about it. Whatever. <sighs> they didn't ask me. I didn't me. see that, but I read it. It was fun, but it wasn't a home. No, it wasn't a home. It was mm-hmm. not a home. You know what they say? A flick is not a home. Uh, <laughs> okay. Donna McKechnie was in On the Town with Bernadette Peters. That's that's okay. one degree. Bernadette Peters was in Okay, was in Do I want to do Sunday or do I want to do Into the Woods? Or do I want to do Goodbye Girl? Okay, we'll do Sunday. <laughs> so we have Okay, we have Donald McKechnie, who was in On the Town with Bernadette <laughs> Peters, who did Sunday in the Park with George. Um, in Sunday in the Park with George, we have, oh, I mean, well, actually, no, here we go. We have Robert Westenberg, <laughs> who was in Secret Garden, and Randy Patinkin, who was also in Secret Garden. Oh, okay. Uh, and Janine DeSori did, I believe, the dance arrangements, as well as music directed Secret Garden. So mm. that is our Janine DeSori connection right there. That's And beautiful. I will not, yes, I will not hear any words against it. So, <laughs> I mean, you literally won't because... Uh, I I just told you. Um, yes, I did Google uh, her name and a chorus line, and um, she's she's done shows where a chorus line started. I mean, there there are some things that come up. Yeah, but I think you handled it, and I think we're yes, good. yes, well, yes, she has done. I think now three shows at the public. She at did public, Carolina yeah. Change, Fun Home, and uh, Soft Power. But we don't really do that kind of connection. We have to make it people, the people. Yeah, it's it's more intelligent than that. I get it. <laughs> yes. uh, Robert, where can people find you if you want them to find you? They can find me on. 54 west no um you can find me on social media everywhere pretty much instagram at rob peter paul twitter at rob peter paul i am on the tiktok the tac tac i've got a little cuckoo on there at robert peter paul i think uh you can also find the art of kindness podcast on the broadway podcast network or anywhere you stream podcasts which is a a fun weird positive time so Mm -hmm. come on down and see us there too Come on down. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, give us a nice five-star rating or review. It's been a minute. But then again, I also know it's been a minute since we recorded some episodes. Uh, Join us next week when we cover God knows what, because we're doing this whole thing out of order. Uh, (laughs) But it will be a wonderful time nonetheless. Robert, we close out every episode with a Broadway diva. I'll put her in post when I edit this thing. Um, Yes. And I like to kind of connect it to uh, the show. So we could always close out with Priscilla Lopez or with Donna, um, or we could close out with somebody else from the show or connected to the show. Uh, who would you like to have us close out with? Or it doesn't have to be connected to the show in any way. Who would you like to close out with today? Oh, it doesn't have to be connected to the show? It doesn't have to be. I've, I I usually like, like to make it, it connected. Be. It also it narrows down the options because the options are so many. I know there are so many options. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of big Broadway divas coming into my head. Um, I would say... Let's connect it to a chorus line. Why don't we close it out with Robin Herder? Oh, okay. Since she was I in the version I kept talking about this whole time. Yeah. And I think she's going to be a, a Broadway diva one day. I mean, she's a Broadway diva in my head. She just needs the right vehicle. I yeah. guess you found a way for me to include a beautiful noise onto this podcast. Ah, yeah. Yeah, because she Maybe. she do have some solos in that show. 
<laughs> a, a beautiful noise is what I like to call it. A beautiful way to waste Robin Herter. Uh, oh, she also did my friend Jay's um, Hocus Pocus Halloween show, which everyone should check out. is a great time. She has a great solo in there that you could maybe pull something from. She is so incredibly talented. She is. She, is. she dances like a motherfucker. She's mm. such a good singer. She's a really wonderful actress. And she's got these eyes where she looks at you and you just yes. know she could break you in half sexually. And I'm like, do. <sighs> please do. Yeah, she's intense. I, actually, at that Halloween show, her mic wasn't working, and the look she gave to whoever was running sound—I, I was glad I was not that person. But it was—it was a moment. It was the scariest yeah. thing at that Halloween show, I should say. Did you see Beautiful Noise? Have you seen Beautiful Noise? Will you see Beautiful Noise? You don't, don't need know. to. You don't need yeah. to. I'm a fan of like the music, but I, yeah, I, yeah. Yes, there's it a lot is, to see. There's a lot. There is a lot to see. There's other, but, and everyone in the show is very talented, but we look forward to their next gig point is <laughs> so let's close let's close out with robin <laughs> <laughs> yeah she just popped and I, I knew you liked her so i think that's a good choice i do she's great um yeah. yeah thank you so much again for listening guys and have a great rest of your week take it away robin bye Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.